Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Josh Martinez. He is the owner and CEO of Pretentious Barrel House, which is a sour brewery here in Columbus, Ohio. I first kind of learned about Pretentious just from the Columbus Ale Trail that we have, which is probably has like 50, 60 breweries um, on it. And they actually limited it to just the Franklin County area now. And then they put everybody outside that's in you know Delaware and Marysville and everything on kind of their own separate trail. So but pretentious barrel house, unique location, kind of in this industrial area on the east side of town off 670. Interesting area to kind of drive around and, and find parking and everything. But really cool spot. They do delicious beer. It's all sour beer. Everything that they do there, they used to make this or, or still do kind of make this uh, peach cobbler beer, which is among my favorites. And, and we actually talk about that uh, towards the end of the podcast. But we talk about Josh's career. You know, he started off in the pharmaceutical industry. And going through that, why he kind of switched to beer, how he first got involved with beer, the process that he goes through with making and blending the beer at their brewery there. It's really delicious beer. You know, I'm a big sour beer guy. Um, that's kind of the only beer really that I drink. I mean, there, there's a few other types, but I'm not an IPA person or anything like that and mostly into wine. But I wanted to have somebody on who has a background in beer. I'm just somebody we haven't had on the podcast. And, you know, why not have one of my favorite breweries in Columbus and the guy that runs it on. So it's a super interesting conversation, uh, very unique background that Josh comes from and everything. So I was, I was super happy with how the episode turned out. And I think it's uh, going to be a little bit different, but uh, also still enjoyable for everybody. You can follow him on Instagram at Josh Martinez. Now his last name is actually spelled M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z, but his Instagram name is actually Josh and then it's M-A-R-T-E-N-E-Z. So an E instead of an I on Instagram, but that's not the correct spelling of his last name. That's just his username on Instagram. You can also follow the brewery itself at Pretentious Barrel House on Instagram too as well. They uh, do a few different things. They're usually posting, but I mean, they have like a skee-ball league that they do that they started back up this year. So they have like skee-ball machines in kind of the back of the, the tap room there. And then they also have uh, some other stuff. So it's a cool environment too. If you're going to have like a little get together or anything and, and everybody kind of with that get together likes, you know, beer and, and sour beer, it definitely makes sense. But you can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter and Facebook which is Spoon Mob 1 on those platforms. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. New episodes of the podcast come out on Thursdays that people we haven't had on before. The YouTube channel, uh, we release those one week behind all the podcast apps. So you know this episode will come out next week on Thursday on YouTube. If that's your preferred platform, uh, we just stagger those because YouTube doesn't really fit into any of the metrics of any of the podcast apps or anything like that. But uh, check out the website, spoonmob.com. We got contact information, food photos, um, all in order of all the people that we've had on the podcast so far. So if you click at the top, it's broken down into chefs, uh, sommeliers, and then kind of insiders, which is you know anybody from you know who runs a business, whether it's Ian Holmes over at Coastal Local falls under there, Carolina Quijano of the Squeezy Toe Chocolates falls in there. Just somebody who's doing you know some stuff in the food and hospitality industry, but isn't exactly a, a chef or a sommelier. So make sure to check out the website too. But without further delay, here's my conversation with Josh Martinez, the owner and CEO of Pretentious Barrel House here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on, doing this at night and once you have left the brewery and, and everything for the day. But we haven't had anybody with a beer background on. You know, we've had some sommeliers that have done the Cicerone exam and stuff like that, but nobody who's a, a brewer or actually runs a brewery, a microbrewery, anything like that. Pretentious, I think I first found out about you guys, it was a couple of years ago. 
just because you guys were like one of the only places that were doing sour beers at the time in Columbus. I know my wife kind of got me on to sour beers back when she was actually drinking beer, which she doesn't really much anymore. And yeah, just kind of got to explore sours, was able to visit the brewery a few times too as well. We're on the interesting space over on the east side and everything like that too as well. And and I know you guys kind of built that space out too. Take me back to the beginning. I mean, you're originally from San Diego, right? So I went to school in San Diego. I'm originally from uh, Fresno, California. I went to UC San Diego. It's a good place to live. It's a great, great school to go to. It's very generous of you to describe our location as, um, what do you call it, uh, interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, generous description of where we're located. It's got character. Oh, man. It's crazy to run any sort of business that has zero foot traffic, like literally zero. Like we have none. Like if people are like, what kind of foot traffic do you have? I'm like, well, zero, zero, absolutely zero. But I mean, it was kind of necessary for what I was doing at the time. I needed a lot of cheap space, but I also wanted to be centrally located. So, I mean, those things don't, they don't add up. So, but somehow I found the diamond in the rough, the giant empty space centrally located in Columbus. So going back to your San Diego days at college, you go to UC San Diego, you got a bachelor's degree in pharmacological, I might be butchering that word. No, yeah. Pharmacological chemistry. Yeah. Why did you choose UC San Diego since, you know, Fresno's is up Northern California, you go to Southern California. I was one of those people that had like so much disdain for their hometown, like I really wanted to get as far away from it as possible. But then California is a big state. So, I mean, I didn't even have to go, you know, San Diego is like six and a half hours from Fresno, which is like, you know, it's far away. And yeah, I just like was one of those people that was as soon as I could, I was getting the fuck out of there. I just, I don't know, like people who I know that still live there. Like, oh man, it's not so bad. And I'm like, I just always hated it. I don't know. I had to get the fuck out of there. I meet a lot of people in Columbus who feel that way about Columbus. And I'm like, I like Columbus. You know, like, I think it's a good spot. But people are like, I need to get the fuck out of here. I'm like, sure, you do you. Yeah. So I moved down there and did the chemistry thing. This was like 2000, like, I guess it's right before 2010. So like 2008, 2006. And the craft beer scene is just an explosion. Like it almost like started in San Diego. I feel like there's Stone and Ballast Point and uh, even uh, Port Brewing, Pizza Port, Lost Abbey, like always like OG breweries that I still you know, think about to this day as kind of like getting me my start. But I mean, shit, like the college I went to had a bar on campus. Like we had, there was, there was a pub on campus and it was, you know, not serving Bud Light. Like it had all this crazy stuff from, you know, Europe and, you know, all over the country. And it was just like, I didn't think anything of it. Like, it was just like, yeah, this is what bars are like. Cause it's like the first bar you could ever really go to at all. So it's like, oh yeah, it's bars. So you go there and they have like 30 taps of beers from all over the world and stuff. And that's just, that's just how it was, you know, but if I would have gone anywhere else, you know, especially like in the Midwest at that time, it was not, that was not the case, you know, 2008 shit. I remember Stone would donate all these kegs on campus. Like it was just like a beer. It was, it didn't make any sense. You know, as far as like the beer that we could get at that time in the craft beer uh, cycle, which has just exploded. Now, as you know, like there's a brewery like on every corner. I feel like if if, if there's a if there's a warehouse somewhere, someone's got to put a brewery in it. It's just <laughs> it's just what happens now. I think at that time there was like a hundred breweries in San Diego or something like that, and I don't even know how many there are now. Probably two hundred or something. San Diego's got a lot. Portland's got a lot. Columbus has a lot too. So would you say like that's kind of what first piqued your interest in beer, the craft brewery scene, was having that ability to try all these different beers on campus, essentially? No, what did it was um, like one of my favorite stories ever is like one of my chemistry teachers was talking about making beer on the weekends. And I was like, what, what? 
you can make beer like no i had no idea you know i i didn't know you could i didn't know you like you could just go to your house and make beer the same way you make like pizza or whatever in your kitchen you can just like you could make it blew my mind and i went home and my roommates i'm like we're making beer this weekend and it was absolutely terrible beer that we made and i've made a lot of terrible beer in the next i guess over the next 10 or 15 years before i started this place i made a lot of really bad beer i don't know there was something something cool about it it was like it was science which i love science but it was also like cooking so kind of art and like that like transition like that like amalgamation of of science and art was just like it did it for me like i don't know why like i've had a lot of hobbies but like man i've been making beer longer than any of those other hobbies i don't do like any of that other shit anymore so I don't know. It was something that just fascinated me. So when you guys were making beer in essentially your college dorm, college apartment, whatever, what were you guys using? Did you guys get one of those do-it-yourself brewery kits or did you just kind of look stuff up on the internet and like, all right, we needed a five-gallon bucket. We need a giant pot. We need and just kind of bootleg it that way. So San Diego like was just beer mecca. And like I think it was only a few miles from campus. There was like a homebrew shop. It was just like you went there and the guy like, gave us some attention and like, you know, he's like, here, read this book, buy this stuff. You know, it's like a, we did like an extract kit. We like, I think we steeped some grain in it. We did some, you know, whatever. We didn't know hops. We read the, we read the book. We did the basic thing, um, that kind of thing. Uh, so we did kind of have a guide. Actually, I hate the internet for, for homebrewing. There's too many opinions and like the books are really nice because there's that thing called editing and uh, you don't get that on the internet. So I would always... I get that from homebrewers a lot. They're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. And they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, don't look on the internet. And I'm like, what you should do is buy this book. Here, I'll give you like four books you could read and read all of those books. And when you're done with that, you'll have a good idea of what you want to do. But, you know, no one wants to read a book. Everyone wants to go to some forum and look up a question and get like a 10 different answers. and None of them are any good. And then they make shit beer and they're like, oh, I tried that and it doesn't work. And I'm like, I'm like it totally would have worked if you would have read those books and understood like the general science behind it and then gone and done a science experiment, you know, and actually like done science, the fuck around and find out part. But everyone wants an easy internet answer. So kind of glad the internet was not what it is now when I started making beer. So I think that was actually kind of helpful. How did you get into chemistry, pharmacological chemistry? Like, I feel like that's a pretty unique thing to go after. We all sat in our dorm room one day and we were all kind of talking about this, but like all of our parents, like all of our dads were all engineers. Like my dad's an engineer, all my friends were his dads and were engineers and we we're all in science and we're like, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, why does this happen? Because none of us were only, none of us are engineers. We're all like in chemistry and I'm like, why, why didn't we do engineering? That would have been oftentimes a better career choice for me. Definitely more money that kind of stuff. But I did chemistry. I don't know. I think like chemistry set when I was a kid, I definitely had a chemistry set when I was a kid. I don't know. I was always fascinated by like the like mad scientist dude in the white coat. Like I was like, I want to be like, I want to be the guy in the white coat, you know, I don't know why. So I was like really into chemistry and you go to college and you, they, they have your, like your weeder classes where they like you do general chemistry. And then 90% of kids realize real quick, they're like, maybe I don't like chemistry. This is really hard. And you know, they're just basically trying to get you the fuck out of there. I sort of really enjoyed it. And I pushed past that. I just felt like it was that, that science that was it was hard enough that it was not not hard like difficult like hard like um strict um where it was like it defined had a lot of rules essentially where it defined kind of like the way that the world functioned you know like physics gets a little weird when you get further into it where like it's more theoretical oftentimes doesn't actually pertain to the natural world at large kind of stuff but chemistry was very much set in you know this is how acids and bases work and that shit, you know this is how electricity works you know this is how a battery works all that kind of stuff it really demystified like the world 
you know, prior to, you know, finishing or doing undergrad, you know, you like look at the back of like a, you know, medicine bottle or like ingredients on like processed food or whatever. And you're like, what the fuck is all stuff? But me, I look at the back of that. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like, well, this is the anti-caking agent that makes it so it pours it on the funnel. And, you know, this is the lubricant they use on the sides of the funnel. So you get the stuff not to stick. And, you know, all that stuff makes sense. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's vitamin C, you know, and all the other shit. But like, you know, it really kind of helps just makes me understand the world, essentially. And I love that. I love the, uh, I don't know, like understanding why everything fucking works. Like that, that's kind of what was one of the things that that drove me. When someone's like, oh, well, like, how does the fucking rain work? Like, how does this, you know, how does the sun work? Like all this shit. And it's like, well, actually, you know, <laughs> you can, you can figure that out. It's, you know, it's chemistry more often than not. Or as my physics friends would always say, it's like, no, everything's physics. You know, if you dive deep enough, it's all physics. I'm like, sure, fine, whatever. But like here on earth, chemistry is generally how we'll explain how something functions. So I think that was kind of what pushed me in that direction, wanting to understand why everything works. I've just always been that kid, the one that took apart the, the radio to see how the radio worked, that kind of shit like that. That was me. So after you graduate, you spend about like the next five years working as a chemist. What does that entail? What is like your day-to-day in those positions that you had over the course of that five-year span? So when I graduated 2009, is if anyone under, under I guess, 40 won't recall or will barely recall, 2009 was not a great time to find a job. That was like the peak of the housing crisis. But I did happen to get a job because I interned at this company for a number of years. I got a job. They're paying me way more than I was worth. And, you know, I, I had, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot else going on or, or any idea of really what I want to do. That's all I ever did. I interned there for a while. I originally, I was going to go to pharmacy school. Uh, and then I did, I made the amazing choice to go shadow a pharmacist at a retail store, like a, like a CVS, um, because you know, when I was like, oh, I'll go to pharmacy school. I want to be the pharmacy guy, like at the hospital, making custom medications for people, for patients and that kind of stuff, like compounding and like actually like helping out doctors treat patients. Like that's what I was thinking about doing. And then I found out that there aren't very, very few of those positions and that only like the top 2% of people who finish pharmacy school get those jobs. And I'm like, I am not the top 2% of any school, as I found out. So that was not going to be me. So I was going to be working like at a CVS if I did pharmacy school. Um, so I went and shot at one of those, those people and I was ready to shoot myself in the face after like four hours of that. And I was like, well, I'm not doing that. I, you know, I started, I was working on a pharmacist, which was day to day, not a lot of chemistry, a lot of writing in notebooks, um, a lot of, uh, I did some science because I was, again, I was pretty, you know, entry level. So I did, I was on the bench quite a bit, but this was like, there's multiple levels of pharmaceutical science. And I was in what's called like phase three, which is drugs that are getting ready to be tested in a clinical trial. The thing about clinical trials is they're like this really exacting science. I worked on the R&D side, but I did some of the, um, which was like formulation R&D. So like basically taking a drug and then packaging it so it was useful. So like drugs are small molecules, which are like little powders. No one eats little powder, right? You eat a tablet or a capsule, that kind of thing. So if you look at the side of a Tylenol bottle, it'll be like 200 milligrams of um, whatever, of Tylenol, acetaminophen. Um, 200 milligrams is not a lot of powder. That tablet probably weighs a gram, right? So the other 800 milligrams is stuff. And so I worked on the getting the stuff together to package that so that it would not degrade, be evenly distributed in the powder. Because right, you just take it and mix it like flour kind of thing. 
comes down a funnel, it gets pressed into a tablet. Um, so it's got to be a homogenous mixture. It's got to stay that way. And it's got to be resistant to moisture and all this other stuff. It can't, the, the pills can't break when they get shooken up. And in the, in the, that's actually why they play cotton in there. Uh, it's called tablet friability and fragile tablets. They, they'll break down. Uh, so they stuff the cotton in there to keep that from happening. That's why, you know, I will be that person where if my kid shakes the pill bottle, I'm like, don't do that. You know, that kind of thing. Cause it breaks all the tablets up and then you don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I would, but that's the kind of shit where I'm like, don't do that because that's, they don't want you to do that. That's why they candy coat tablets. That's why Tylenol, when it's like candy coated in those pretty colors, it's to keep it so that when you shake the bottle, shit doesn't break up and go everywhere. That kind of, there's always nuances to pills and stuff that I know that no one fucking cares about and no one will ever notice. I have like superstitions, not even superstitions, but like I won't buy any 24 hour release tablets. I won't do it because I know how fucking impossible it is to make a tablet that floats in your body and is slowly released over 24 hours. So I don't buy them because I know they don't work very well because it's very, very difficult to achieve. And if they do do it, I will only buy the, I will only buy the name brand. I'm not going to buy the generic because I've worked at a generic pharmaceutical company and generics never perform as well unless it's a media release. If it's like a media release, like take this every four hours or something like that, that shit generic all day, every day. But it's anything where it's like proprietary, 24-hour release, you know, that kind of shit. Nope. Buying the, I'm buying the actual drug manufacturer. I'm not buying the generic. It's not as good. And yeah, this is all of my knowledge built right here. Everyone gets that. You get these for free, everyone. I had to learn this on the bench. But what I did learn about my career and those, I guess, the, the phase three kind of pharmaceuticals is I am not the most attention to detail person. I was not very good at it. I was actually, uh, my very, very first job, I was actually shit canned from because I sucked. And then the second, the job I had after that, which was not pharmaceutical related, it was like this biochemistry job. I did so much better at that job because it was still R&D. Like I was really good at solving problems. Like that's, that's where I am. Like I'm the problem solver, idea guy. If you want me to do the same fucking thing every day, like day, I will, I won't do it. Like I just, I can't. I'm, I'm not capable of it. I mean, cheers to those people that can. Like I could never work in quality control. I just don't have that attention to detail. Which I'm glad. That's like one of the best jobs I got fired from. My boss was great. He was, he was great because he's just like, you're a cool dude and I really like you, but you suck. Like you suck at this job. And I'm like, and I did. Like I fucking sucked. They should have fired me earlier. I'm sure I was just pissing off everyone else because that someone had to pick up my slack because I was just not doing a good job. Which I mean, that's like one of those life things where I'm like, you should get fired from a job at some point. It's like a it's a good it's a good life lesson. I did do pharmaceuticals again when I moved here briefly, even though I know I'm not good at it because I could fake it till I make it. I was just like, I need I need a job to make money in the meantime while I try and get this brewery off the ground. And I'm like, I won't be here long enough for them to realize that I suck at this job. So which was the case. For that five-year span, like you're, you're working these couple jobs and these pharmaceutical jobs and, and biochemistry and everything. And then you wind up moving to Lexington, Kentucky, right? Yeah. My wife got into medical school at UK. My wife, she was one of those people that knew what she wanted to do. She's like, I'm going to be a doctor. And I'm like, okay, cool. But then she actually did it. She, she was like, I'm going to take my MCATs, you know, go to the study things at night and then go to, you know, go to medical school. And then it was funny. So that year before we left to, to Lexington, I decided that that summer or something like that before that I was going to, I'm like, I'm going to make beer. Like, this is what I'm going to fucking do. I'm going to stop doing the science bullshit. And I'm going to, I'm going to make beer. So I went on this crazy quest where I was going to brew, I was going to brew hundred batches of beer in a year, which is a lot. What were you quantifying a batch as? A complete, uh, a, a recipe that I would use to test a component. 
whatever that have you. My biggest thing that I would test frequently was yeast. We were home to like a yeast lab in San Diego called White Labs, which they're still a pretty big producer of yeast, but they had like 60 different yeast strains or something like that at the time in the catalog. I figured out early on after reading some books that like 80 to 90% of all the flavor compounds in beer are derived from yeast, which I'm like, why am I focusing on grain and hops if all the flavor comes from yeast? So I spent all this time trying to figure out what yeast strains tasted good, ones that I liked, which now in hindsight was probably the most important thing that I did because that's like probably 100% of the flavor that we derive at the company I work at is you know, all from yeast. You know, we don't, we don't focus on grains and hops the same way that most brewers do. You know, we're very, very much more focused on how fermentation progresses and what nuance metabolites are created by the yeast, that kind of thing. But yeah, so I just went on this giant parade of making like, I'd make 10 gallons of, of wort or whatever, some base recipe. I'd split it into 10 one-gallon containers and do different yeasts across all of them. They'd ferment out, cold crash them, bottle them, carbonate them, that kind of stuff. And then like drink one beer of each of them, take notes in my, my, my notebook. That's the one thing science did help me with is that I did learn how to take effective notes. So I'd you know, write down my tasting notes and all stuff in my notebook. And then I would just be like, have a party with my friends and be like, drink all of this shit because I don't care about it anymore. I need to move on. I need to make the next batch. So just like keep drinking the stuff, friends, because I'm moving. I'm learning. I'm getting gaining valuable knowledge here. So my friends did enjoy like the parties we'd have because you'd be like, all right, well then free beer for everybody, you know, and then we'd move on to the next beer. I guess this the beginning of my slide into what I do now. You essentially were doing like your own trials. Oh, absolutely. Were you messing with like temperature too as well? Like you'd store one here in this closet, maybe this other one in the basement and see how that affected it, like all that stuff? No, fuck no. I, this was not like dipping my toe in the fucking pool. Like yeah, I built the temperature controlled like chambers. They tell you what the ideal temperature range is, right? So then I would ferment one. You know, we did. I did a trial where we would do all the same yeast strain, but I would, yeah, ferment them at different temperatures. So it's like some in the chamber, some, you know, over here was really warm by the window, you know, over, one over here where it didn't change much, but it was like definitely warmer than in that chamber, that kind of stuff. And you taste them and like, if more often than not, the one that had temperature control was better. So you're like, all right, well, there's definitely something to that. But yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't half-ass any, any of the shit that I was doing. I was throwing all of my effort at this. That was the year I think I, I read 15 beer books. It was just, I just couldn't stop. I just was like, this is what I'm going to fucking do and I'm going to do it. When do you get to the point where you're like, I'm ready to open my own? Because you wound up having a partner and everything and then that just didn't like work out. Ooh, partners. Okay. He backed out or something, right? So many things that have happened on the way here. Uh, so the biggest thing that I did or most helpful thing was that uh, I was trying to start a brewery in Kentucky. Um, I had like two or three guys that I was trying to start it with. Uh, one of them was like a real estate guy. And he he just got his real estate license. He'd been like flipping houses since he was 18 or something like that. I can't remember how I got hooked up with him, but he was like, all right, because he was going to fund it because he had, he was like, all right, well, I have, he's like, I'll sell like these two or three houses I have. And then we'll like, we'll get a spot and start working on it. And I was like, well, you know, we got to do the business plan stuff first. Let's, you know, don't, don't sell your house. Let's like uh, look at this. And so we like set it up and we we're crunching all the numbers. And he's just like, that doesn't make a lot of money. And I'm like, 
I mean, I guess not really. No, you you, you don't do it because it's a, making a lot of money. You do it because it's fucking cool. And he's like, no, nah, I'm going to just stick to real estate because it makes a lot of money. And I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. Fair. I'm not going to fault you for that. But the beer doesn't make a lot of money. The richest people, you know, aren't brewers. <laughs> like they're just, just generally not the case. Generally not brewers. You know, restaurant owners don't tend to be the richest people, you know. But they seem to like what they're doing, I guess, or at least be good at it. So but what I did find was my friend who was actually opening a brewery, uh, my buddy Brandon and uh, one of his high school friends, fucking Bishop, they uh, they were opening a brewery and it was actually half They had a space, they're building it out. And I was like, how about I build a lab inside your space and I run it, I pay for everything. And I just like, we do weird, funky shit. And he, they're like sold, you know, I could just build the space. Uh, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to pay me. I'm just going to just sit here and learn stuff. Um, and that was easily like, best thing I did. I spent a year moonlighting there. So I would just go do my day job, uh, get off work, go there. We were just like constantly trying to steal the brewery's yeasts and use them in like small batch experiments and just kind of trying to learn about barrel aged sour beer because him and I were both really into it. There wasn't a lot of information that existed at the time. There's a couple books. Uh, There's a podcast we were listening to. There's not a whole lot of information available. Uh, so we were just like, well, we'll figure it out. And we decided to figure, I mean, we did every fucking wrong thing we could. Like we made it, we made the worst sour beer ever all the time. But I'm glad because, you know, when I started my place, we didn't do any of that. We were ready to go. We had a good idea of what didn't work. Um, Not necessarily what would work, but what didn't work. Was that ethereal brewing? Yeah, I was just there recently because we did a collab with them, which was like something we've been in the works for years, but it actually happened now. That was fun. When you were there with them, you were like their chief science officer, right? Yeah, I was running the lab. What does a chief science officer effectively do? We did a lot of troubleshooting because we had a lot of issues. We would have problems where, or we would try to do new things. Like we would do like, you know, we're trying to figure out how to do like kettle souring was new. We're like, what's the best way to do that? And how can we regulate it? And how can we inoculate it? And like, where's this bacteria coming from? And is it doing well? You know, what's our cell counts looking like for for our yeast pitches? And how's that affecting our final product? You know, that's more of the stuff I was kind of looking into. Because I wasn't in charge of production, I could sit there and actually figure out the nuance bullshit that most people kind of skip over because you're too busy trying to make beer. You're not really sitting there being like, well, this attenuated one day slower than the last time we made it. And why? You know, did we pitch the same amount? You know, how much did we pitch? How old was that pitch? You know, all of that kind of stuff. If you don't sit there and have someone look at it and then try and make an experiment after that to figure it out, it just goes by the wayside and you don't learn anything. So I was doing most of that, just trying to figure out what was working and why. And then if we had a problem, how we fixed it. That was majority of my role there. I feel like Flo and I were both learning. We were both like flying by the seat of our pants all the time. He definitely had a lot more experience on the brew stand. And I had more experience kind of of fermentation and like general scientific practices. But I mean, for the most part, we we're just making it up as we go. So, which I feel like is the only way to learn. Just make shit up until something starts to work. Then you wind up eventually moving to Columbus. Was that because like your wife got a job here or transferred or something? Yeah. So she finished medical school. Um, we moved up here for her residency. I was like, this is it. I'm going to fucking, I'm going to start this brewery. We're going to do it in Columbus. It seemed like a great idea at the time. And uh, I tricked a bunch of people into giving me money. That was cool. I don't know. Like, I just got one of my neighbors. Like, he's just one of those like, 
people that knows everybody. And I was like talking to him about, you know, what I was trying to do and showing him my business plan and like all this other stuff. Like I'd gotten my branding done. And I was like, I'm looking for a space, I'm looking for investors. And he just like hooked me up with a bunch of guys that were willing to give me money off the strength of my business plan and some other. And I was like, man, that's I I look back at that business plan sometimes and I'm like, geez, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I wish, you know, hindsight always, but like, God, like it's so bad. It's so bad. I decided like on my concept and what I want to do and I was getting some money together. I cannot believe that I have this place that we make this nuanced thing. Like it's just such a niche and that we, that's all we do. As my friends have said, it's, you know, that muffin top brewery. It's like, we just make the good weird shit. Like we don't have to sit there and grind out some hazy IPA to to appeal to the masses. We get to do our, my bullshit art all the time. That is cool. Like, I do like that. Like, I do like to do my bullshit art, which is, which is fun. It's the most hoity-toity beer <laughs> that like you could make. It's so non-scientific, but yeah, it's, it's cool. It's, there's something about it that I just love. I don't feel like I'm in control at all, but it somehow works out every time. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. But you guys open Pretentious in October, 2017. How difficult was it to find the space? So you need something large enough for obviously your brewery equipment, storage too as well, but you're on a budget. If I could do it again, I would I have so many changes that I would make. We needed that space as far as like I needed something big. Coming from San Diego, there's nothing I hate more than commuting. Like I cannot describe how much I hate commuting. Like I just cannot. I, I tell people stories where people are like, oh, traffic's so bad. I'm like, fuck, you know, it's not. No, it's, I'm like, did you get out of your car? Have you ever gotten out of your car on the freeway? Go fuck yourself. That's right. You, your, your, your commute was fine. You were fine. Did it take less than two hours to go five miles? Sweet. Seems like a good deal. But I still, I get triggered if I have to fucking wait more than like 30 minutes to get anywhere on the freeway. So I, I refuse to commute. I've quit jobs because of commuting. I think the first job I had in Kentucky when I moved there, I was doing like, uh, I was working on a paint plant. I was doing like some chemical engineering work there. Um, but it was a 50 minute commute and it was, it was not traffic. It was just distance. It was 50 minutes every day, which was actually comparable to my commute in San Diego time-wise. But that commute, you could make it shorter. Like you could wake up really early, which is what I ended up doing when I lived there. I, was like, I would get to work at seven to avoid the commute, but there was no avoiding this 50 minute commute. It was 50 minutes, no matter what fucking time of the day it was. Um, and I ended up having to quit that job because I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be in my, I can't be in my car that on two hours every day. No, thank you. I just, I would rather make less money and not be in my car for, for fucking a hundred minutes every day. So I needed something close to where I lived. <laughs> I needed it. That was a requirement. There's not a lot of warehouse space in Columbus. Someone told me about this because I didn't know. They're like, oh, well, there's like, there was no industry in Columbus. Not like there was in like Cleveland or Cincinnati. There just wasn't the same type of industry. It was more of like a distribution. Yeah. White collar city. I think he called it a paper town or something like that, where it's like white collar banks and shit like that. But yeah, so I didn't know that, but it made sense after I kind of started looking around. There really aren't that many warehouses compared to like Cleveland, where there's a surplus of warehouses. You go, you go find a brick warehouse, you know, everywhere. Trip on one on your way to work. Yeah. And I would say even the places that people probably think are warehouses, you know, in your Groveport area, they aren't really warehouses. They're constructed, you know, built from blueprint distribution centers. Like they're just empty kind of buildings that they just kind of pop up. Like they're not a traditional, this thing then got turned into this thing, doing all this manufacturing kind of deal. They don't always have like 
the water stuff set up or all the electrical where you need it and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, this place didn't either. Like, that's the thing is like this building was not really a great place to do this, but it worked out. I don't have the same utility requirements as a regular brewery. Air quotes. We don't brew the beer on site. We collect wort from a another brewery, a sister brewery, uh, and bring it back to our place to do the fermentation, which we I catch a lot of flack for that. And I don't understand that, but I mean, to each their own. Because of that, I don't need the same utilities. I don't need the same electrical, water, fire hazard prevention, that kind of stuff. So we could be more flexible than a, than a regular brewery. But the space we picked, um, which we outgrew immediately because I apparently couldn't do simple math with how big barrels are and how many I would need to make enough beer to sustain a business. Uh, again, going back to that business plan, which made no sense. I think once we put up our... 40th or 50th barrel, we had to expand into the adjacent room next to us, uh, which is our current setup. So if you, when was the last time you were there or the first time you were there? Well, the first time I was there was before you guys had like the ski ball and all that stuff. But did we have that second warehouse area? Uh, yeah, you had the bar area and then obviously the stuff behind the bar. I don't remember if you had. Did the building end at the mural? Yeah. Okay. So you're there in the beginning. If this is like a fun fact for everyone, if you're ever in the brewery, but there's three murals on the wall. And that last mural was the end of the building or our, at least our spot before we tore the wall down. So yeah, we started really, really, really small. Uh, but that warehouse is great from the standpoint of we're less than eight minutes from downtown or less than six minutes from the airport and 10 minutes from my house. It's right off the freeway. Uh, it's just not the nicest neighborhood. <laughs> it's a weird neighborhood. Like, just even like the side roads are weird. I know there's one part to if you're trying to get on like 670 from there, maybe they changed it, but it was like you would go out and around and then kind of run into like almost like this triangle setup. And you're like, I just want to get on the freeway. Like, I don't know how, which way am I supposed to go here? Fun fact, all those stop signs are yields. Because if you there's like a little sign underneath it, it's like stop unless you're making a right-hand turn, in which case you blow the stop sign. So it's like, it's funny, you know, as a, uh, I guess I'm kind of a local there, a regular. Like I don't stop at all. And then like every once in a while, someone will get in a car accident because someone will stop at that stop sign. And even though they don't need to, they'll get rear-ended. And I'm like, huh, yep, that guy, this is their first time here. It's actually even starting now, which is weird. Like it's starting to, people are starting to come in and invest. Like the the properties are starting to flip now. And I'm like, oh man, and it's good, but it's bad because I'm a renter. I don't I don't own my building. So I see, I see, I foresee my rent going up at some point after my lease is over. But maybe at that point, we'll just move. I don't I don't know. But uh, yeah, so we picked that building because A, it was available. B, it was cheap. Holy shit, it was cheap. Uh, the original landlord who I signed my lease with was a tenant of the building. And he had the most sweetheart deals with everybody. Like if, you go, if I go back and look at my lease compared to like what other people were paying, they're just like, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, we were paying, I think we were paying less than 50 cents a square foot or something like that. I think it was like 40 cents a square foot per month. You just wanted somebody in the building. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was vacant and it had been vacant for a while. It was like an electrician who moved out or something like that. And yeah, so I was. it was a good spot. They gave us, he gave me, I think he gave me six months of free rent. And I was like, or he did, yeah, he didn't even get mad when I asked for it. Cause I'm like, I need six months of free rent to do the build out. And they're like, okay. And I was like, sweet. I was expecting this to be a fight, but all right, I will take, okay. And I'm like, shit, I should ask for 12 months because our schedule, you know, we were supposed to open, I think in March or some shit like that. I think it was our first, right. We're going to open in March and then we opened in October. So that's, that's a delay for sure. And I think a lot of that is poor communication with contractors. I think contractors really 
they really think they can get it done, you know, in their timeline, but they are so fucking wrong. And you think they would know that they're so bad at like hitting timelines. They would just be like, well, we think we can do it by March, but reality probably more like August. And like, that would have been realistic. Like if they were like, all right, plan for August and then ends up being October. You're like, all right, well, not so bad. Still bad, but not so bad. Um, but that was, yeah, that was, that was an aggressive timeline shift. I think we've deleted them all, but I feel like there used to be Easter eggs. You could go back to our like Instagram when I first started and like see our like original opening and then like it got shifted. <laughs> it just keeps getting pushed back, you know, another month, another month, another month. What all did the contractors like have to build out for you guys? Was it everything? It was mostly electrical stuff, electrical plumbing. The electrical plumbing was like the big stuff. The unit was occupied by electricians and they did stuff in there, like obviously, but they did stuff in a way where like every electrician I've come in has been like, who the fuck did this? You know, kind of thing where they're like, "Who? this person was an idiot. I don't know if that's like a repairman code where the first thing you have to do is insult the previous person who did whatever work it was. But every, every electrician that's come in has been like, what the fuck is this place? And I'm like, yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. Like if the wiring in my house was that bad, I would have someone come in and gut it and just be like, this place is going to burn down if we don't fix this. But there's wires that were like, it used to be one unit, I think, before they consolidated it or before they, they cut it up. And there's like, we have power in our unit that was coming from like other boxes and other units. And like, we had power in ours that just went through walls. And you're like, where's that going? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to shut it off. It's, it's definitely has power. Like, I don't know. It's mostly been consolidated at this point, fortunately on my dime which is even more unfortunate but the build out was mostly yeah just bathrooms drainage for the the plumbing stuff electricity there were some like aesthetic shit that i wish i didn't pay for in hindsight again all of this hindsight stuff if i was smart i'd go back and then not build a tap room there just warehouse it everything all my production stuff all the warehousing and then build a tap room somewhere else i take all that money and then get a nice little tap room somewhere else somewhere with foot traffic that people aren't afraid to go to. <laughs> and still do that in the future. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. We're, like, I feel like I like our spot now. It is have character and we're like, we're more of a production brewery now anyways, where I don't give a fuck if people come over or not. It's like we put our product everywhere now. Go, go buy it. Someone, you know, someone already paid us for it. So support them for supporting us push it out of state, that kind of stuff. So and after COVID, I grew very disenchanted with the running of a tap room. It's a, it's a lot of money we spent that we can't get back. When COVID happens, you run in a tap room, obviously everything kind of shuts down from March till June. Like everybody was kind of on like lockdowns and stuff. And how much did that affect you? Like how close were you guys to just being shut down completely and like being done? Oh, we like, yeah, I think the day, so we locked down, basically laid off everybody. I had like two employees I kept and we, the good thing about beer, at least the good thing about our stuff in general, like we had it a little better than like restaurants and stuff. Cause like our pack, we can package our product. It can sit on a shelf. I mean, not like anyone, you know, can sell it cause no one's really open, but like it was much, they made it with that new delivery thing for alcohol where they immediately were like, oh, you can do home delivery, that kind of stuff. Like that was real helpful. So, I mean, at least like that, you know, we were able to package a product, didn't have to worry about it expiring, you know, that week or keeping it warm or figuring out the logistics of, you know, driving your stuff around. So, I mean, that, it was not as bad as it could have been. Definitely felt worse for like the, the restaurant folks because it's much harder to transport food than it is to transport beer. And that continues to kind of even be a thing where, you know, we basically reformatted our entire business so that we're like 
you know, we established all these distribution networks. We switched our packaging so that it's cheaper for us to manufacture more of it, that kind of stuff. So like now our whole business is more built on B2B sales and less about like retail customer sales, which I mean, is probably the smarter play in, in the long term to like establish this kind of like less reliant on, you know, getting people in the doors. So I think we're, we're, we're definitely stronger now having gone through that than probably would have been prior, I guess. I don't know. We're definitely a different company altogether, for sure. And you guys were like delivering to, I think, a day, maybe a month or day every couple of weeks. Weren't you guys delivering to like Cincinnati area if you got enough orders and stuff like that? Yeah, we were going to Cincinnati and Cleveland once a month, which we still do, but, you know, not for home deliveries for, for B2B, but which we weren't, I mean, we weren't doing a lot of del- like outside sales stuff before. So, I mean, all of this has just kind of been... I guess, pr- prompted by that, like all of the uh, us going out and kind of being more statewide and less, you know, Columbus centric has been was kind of the, the biggest change or take home from all of that. But yeah, I mean, we ended up, I think it was like in July or something like that. Like it was like, I think it was right after everyone reopened and we kind of didn't reopen. My wife also physician and science background. We're not convinced that it was a good idea. You know, I got to, as a business owner, I got to make as much money as I can so that my employees can continue to be employed, that kind of thing. But we ended up crying for help, like, please buy our stuff because it's been really rough and we have stuff for you to buy. We're not, we're not asking for, you know, GoFundMe or, you know, for a handout, just like buy the stuff that we have. That would be very helpful, which people, you know, they help us out. Like they call to action, like people did support us. Like it really helped us out. I know I think I had some, I've talked to people since then. They're like, oh yeah, I remember buying stuff from you that like July or whatever. I'm like, well, I fucking appreciate it. So thanks. You know, I, I, I'm sure I probably dropped the stuff off on your porch. Like it was, you know, we weren't a big operation. There's three of us. It's definitely one of those things where it helps. You guys didn't do anything with like, there were breweries that were switching over to make hand sanitizer during that time. I don't know if this is true or not. You'd have to tell me, but I heard that like some of the equipment would get ruined if you did that. And then you'd have to like replace all that equipment. Nah, no, no. We didn't make any sanitizer, but like that's a distillation process. That's not like a, that's not a beer thing. It's like we, we did donate. No, that's not even because, but what you could do if you're a brewery, if you had beer that was going to go to shit anyways, like you have your like whatever hazy IPA, which got a shelf life of like, 30 days anyways like if it's like 60 days in a tank or something you're gonna throw down the drain anyways you could give it to the distillery and they could at least distill the booze off it and then use that booze to make hand sanitizer that kind of thing people were doing that we had the advantage of if our beer gets a little older it's not a big deal you know our, our beer tends to be you know over nine nine months old before we even start dealing with it anyways so we were definitely in the position of time is not our enemy but that's not the case for every brewery. So there are definitely breweries doing that. Yes, but it's distillation to make hand sanitizer. So it was more distilleries doing that. What was it about kind of like sour beers that when, you know, you opened your own brewery, you only did sours and not also, you know, majority sours, but you did like a Pilsner and you did an IPA or you could, you know, you just stuck strictly with sours and you guys were the first, you know, sour only brewery that we had. Do you remember the first sour beer you ever had? It would have been at World of Beer. I could tell you the place. I don't know the exact. It probably would have been something from like the New England area, maybe. But I know it was definitely World of Beer would have been where I encountered it. I vividly remember the first sour beer I ever had. So the first sour beer I ever had, I was at my my local bar. So I was at the the Toronado in North Park in San Diego. And one of my friends is drinking 
this bright gold liquid out of this like thimble, like tiny little glass, this bright gold liquid. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And she's like, oh, it's uh, she's like, oh, it's this new Belgium beer. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm fucking, that looks cool. Check that out. So I go, you know, get my pour of it. I was like, Jesus Christ, it's kind of expensive for this two ounces of beer, whatever. I sit down, I sit down and I'm like, oh, you know, talking about our bullshit. And then I take a sip of that beer and I just like stopped. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I just had, I was like, oh, you know, it's like, just like shock across your face, which I, I still see every once in a while. I love when someone's in my place and they're like tasting that sour beer. And it's obviously something they are not familiar with. And they're just like, you know it's like the the bitter beer face commercials they used to run kind of like way back in the day and it's just like that shock on their face they're like what the fuck just happened i was like i just like it just threw me for a loop i'm like what is this and i like drank more of it and drank more of it i'm like actually i'm like there's a lot of there's a lot going on in here like i at first it was like it was just sour but it's like the sour was actually just like it was just a byproduct of all the other stuff that was going on um and then they're like oh there's another one on too so i like tried another one on tap and then i was like i really enjoy this like i don't i've never had anything quite like it and then i you know talked to the bartender i'm like where can i get you know more stuff like this and they're like oh you know like like the lost abbey makes stuff like this too and i'm like oh shit okay i'll have to go check it out and then like so red poppy is actually one of my favorite beers like to this day like i still love it when i can get it which they do distro to ohio now so it's like i'm a sucker if i'm out doing delivery somewhere and i see a bottle of it i'm like oh fuck yeah and i just go i just go grab it i don't give a shit and they're like oh like we had they'll be like trying to upsell me and other stuff i'm like no, no 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 i want red poppy like red poppy is what i'm here for i'm not buying it because it's like i'm trying it for the first time it's like yeah it's really good and i enjoy it you know that kind of thing and that just like i just was like from from the moment i had it, i was like how the fuck is this made like what is going on here like and there was no information there was nothing like at the time there was nothing do you like the only way to like figure out what the hell they were doing at lost Abbey was to you know talk to tommy arthur be like hey what are you doing over there that kind of thing which i guess at the time you could have you could have gone there and be like hey can i speak to tommy and he might have been there he could have asked him which like the idea of that nowadays just blows my mind because yeah they're just they're just dudes you can totally go and just talk to them it's funny because i've emailed guys like that sometimes where i'm just like hey I have this question and like, I shit you not, they'll email you back, like usually less than 24 hours. And they just like, they'll just answer your question. They're like, yeah, man. And I'm like, I love your beer. Like fucking keep doing it. Appreciate you. After that, it was just like everywhere I went, I was like looking for, looking for those sour beers. And then when I moved to the Midwest, I was very much unimpressed by the availability of sour beer that existed here. Columbus wasn't as bad because Columbus is a pretty big city. You know, like there's, there's stuff here. You can get some European stuff, that kind of thing. But like when I was in Kentucky, I was like, this is, this is, I can't, this, I can't deal with this. But when I moved to Columbus, I was like, how is no one doing this yet? Like, why, why not? Why not here? Like, this is a big beer state. Like it's a big beer town. Like how does this brewery not exist? Like this brewery should exist. And then sure enough, right after I started mine, like two other ones <laughs> opened immediately. So it's like, okay, well, I wasn't alone in this idea that, that other people wanted to, they thought this would this would happen. It's such a nuanced product. It was something I didn't understand. There's a lot of work that goes into it. You know, for the first year, honestly, I was just like trying to figure it out because it's hard to, there's no real way to learn about it. Like you can't scale it the same way that you can like a pilot beer. Like you can make IPA in your stove. Like you can make just as good IPA in your stove as I can at fucking Trillium. You know, all the, you know, you can make just as much that you can make that beer at your house just as good. Absolutely. But you cannot shrink down a barrel scale. Like you can't do it. Like it doesn't work that way. You know, you can't blend with unless you have multiple barrels to blend from like there's just no way to practice until you're like actively there so you know oftentimes 
I've get, been asked like, how did you, you know, get this to work, you know, like this recipe or, you know, so on and so forth. And it's like, I had a lot of really good ideas from all the books I read and all the people I consulted. But at the end of the day, it was a shot in the dark. It happened to work. I'm glad it worked. But yeah, it was a shot in the dark. I understood the process. I understood what I wanted the final product to be like, but I don't know what's going to taste like six months from now in a, in a barrel that I've, you know, I've never barrel aged anything other than like one batch of beer that I released like the day of that we'd aged in my basement or something like that. Like other than that, like this project is the first time we've really, I've really done any of this, especially on the scale that first year, like we were doing like anytime we did anything, it was always like, we blended beer from the same batches only. We blended beer from the same barrel types only. We blended, We if we added a fruit, we added one fruit. You know, it was all just trying to figure out what the fuck is happening with these ingredients and how can I control it for the future reference. I think at year two was the first time I'd ever used two fruits at the same time. No one would ever notice that kind of shit. But I'm like, as a scientist, I'm like one variable at a time. Like we had to do one thing at a time. Like I didn't find out until like nine months in that I prefer American oak over French oak. How are you supposed to know that? Like, I don't know. Like you figure that shit out, I guess. So, you know, since then our, our seller is like skewed, very American oak. So when you first start out, were you trying to keep the, the batches that you were brewing small enough to where if something went wrong or something didn't come out right, you didn't have a giant sunk cost in this product that like you spent, you know, a month or whatever creating it was like all right at least it's small enough that sucks that it didn't work out but like we still have these other you know 12 small barrels like over here uh, this will refer back to my initial uh go big go home all in strategy or no i did huge fucking batches we did 30 barrels at a time which is 900 gallons which is like if you kegged it all out it's like it's a uh, whatever it is 60 60 half barrel kegs one barrel is like two kegs or something like that yeah, so we did 30 at a time. So yeah, so 60 big ass kegs per batch. So no, we did the opposite. I My my idea was that if I made big enough batches, they would be kind of cohesive enough. Or so I thought, or I, I would have to, I don't know. There was some theory behind it. I thought the scale was good. It had some issues for sure. The beer that we made in the first month is night and day from the beer we make now. Beer we make now is made in a completely different process. One that's far far more efficient and really consistent, which I always laugh anytime anyone has ever uttered that this batch of beer I made is not as good as the previous batch. And I'm like, You're, it's, it's actually so much better than every other batch. It's actually only getting better. Quality is only going up, sir. You're, you're so, so wrong. I cannot take anything you say seriously now because the beer that we make now is exponentially better. In fact, you could taste some of our old beer because we, we have like retains from like, gosh, from almost like two or three years ago. And you taste that old stuff and you're like, yeah, this is fine. Like it's, it's okay. And you taste like the new version of that beer and you're like, oh, it's like, yeah, we figured it out. Like we fucking figured it out and we improved every time. It's, it's one of those like consistent growth situations where like, oh no, every time we tasted, evaluated, made a mistake. We changed something. You know, we we changed our process, or we changed our ingredients, or we changed. You know, there was some sort of change that we made to then make things more consistent, better for us. But it is uh, streamlined. Like it, it is a very at the end of the day. Like I still go and taste every single barrel and blend them all together for every batch. Like there's no like there's no I just look at the spreadsheet and pick barrels a b c d and they go together that doesn't happen it never happens it's it's like it's always the same the same I sit down taste them all blend them all and then we do it again the next day and to confirm and that happens every time for every batch 
how many are you blending? Are you picking from, on average, six barrels, 12 barrels? I fucking wish it was six barrels. That would be the best day ever. Uh, no, I'll frequently taste like 30 or 40 barrels, and that'll be one day. I cap myself at 40. 40 is like the absolute max barrels I'll taste in one day because your palate just gets fucked. It usually takes multiple days. Um, so if I want to make a big blend, so something that's like we did recently, I did like a, a blend of like 15 barrels or something like that. So in order to actually like get a big enough pull to make 15 not be basically every barrel you tasted, you have to taste at least three times the amount that you want to blend. And, and at least that's how I do it. So I need to taste at least 45 barrels if I'm going to blend 15. That's a minimum. So more often than not, I'll taste 30 one day, like 30 the next day, and then I'll take really good notes as far as the barrels that I liked, what I liked about them, what the goal of the project was. Do I want something that's like you know, more acidic or more oak forward, or do I want something lighter? Do I want something more fruity? Do I want something with more yeast characters? Do I want something really dry? Do I want something kind of sweet? And take all the notes about what I thought about every individual barrel. And then the third day, I'll pull all the stuff that I found that was really interesting, and then I'll start my blending. And then I'll make at minimum four blends. And then I usually do this, what I call my like Hail, Hail Mary blend, where I take only the best barrels that I had that day like regardless of what they tasted like, just the ones I thought were my favorite barrels. And I blend that together. And then I do all the other ones, which are more like nuanced, where I'm like, I have a goal. These fit my goal parameters. And I'm trying to structure that blend around that. And more often than not, those are the better blends, not the ones that with the best barrels, the ones where it's like, I intentionally put these beers together together because they accomplished my goal, which was either you know something really sour or something really dry or something with a bunch of oak in it, that kind of thing. But yeah, it takes days and hours and which is cool because now it's mostly what i do on the production side because i have enough guys now that do the uh emptying of the barrels and the filling of the barrels and the cleaning of tanks and stuff like that so i spend the majority of my week doing blending and stuff now so which is what i wanted to do when i initially started this whole thing when you guys started you were using i think wart from four strings brewery they're gone so you had to shift to somebody else you mentioned earlier kind of you get some flack for that but really you're just focusing on the bacteria and the yeast components changing the flavor more so than the first half of the process which is pretty generic in terms of if anybody's ever done home brewing or anything like that like it's well yeah you i mean you can mess around with what hops you want to put in there and stuff like that but at the end of the day you know, when you're doing like the home brewing stuff, because I've done it and it's like, you don't add any flavor in until after to the first half of the part. Like you're not dumping flavor in with the hops and like letting all that boil or anything like that. So with all that being said, like, it's kind of weird. I think that you catch any flack or backlash or anything for not doing the first part because sour beer is so dependent upon the second part, right? You're using that thing, uh, logic. Yeah. That's uh, just go ahead and throw that shit away. Uh, this is about internet keyboard warriors. There's a romantic idea of like the brewer on the brewer stand, you know, a c covered in grain and sweaty and stirring a mash with a stick. Like there's just like this, people have this like romantic idea of like what brewing beer is, which is funny because like even one of my employees, he's like our head of production, Robbie, he was still kind of like, he was a home brewer, you know, and he's like wanted to work at a brewery and he, you know, he, he works here at the one like the non-brewery brewery. And uh, he was definitely still like, he had that itch. And I could tell he was like, I really want to like brew beer. And I've brewed beer like on on, on, a, on a stand. Like I've made beer before. It sucks. It's, uh, it's not a great job. It's dirty. It's hot. You can fuck your shit up. Like as far as like, 
you can have the best recipe ever and you can just fuck up your mashing or, you know, or your fucking mash out gets stuck. Like it can be miserable. You could boil over, you could not hit your volumes. Like there's all sorts of shit that can go wrong. It's, it's not my idea of a good time, but I was like, you know what you want to do it. I will schedule you time to go to North high and you can brew a beer with those guys. You can go hang out with them all day, get there at 6am and start grinding grain. Like, fuck yeah, go for it. And he went and did that. I'm like, so when do you want to go do that again? He was like, nope, I'm good. I'm like, right? It is not the fun part. The fun part is the the, the after fermentation, the drinking the beer. That is the fun part. Um, for us, it's like not even like that's the beginning. I always laugh. Like that's that's like my one of my tour like sentences where I'm just like, yeah, well, like most most brewers stop like where we get started. Like, they're done. Like once it's fermenting the tank, it's fucking it. They put it in kegs and they pack it up and give it to you. That's fucking that's like timeline. That's zero. You know, that's where we get going. It's like right where we get started. Fun stuff starts happening around like seven, eight months in a barrel. That's when you start like really understanding like where this beer is going. And then hopefully you like where it's going because there's not really much you can do to stop it at that point. So with sour beers, I've always heard that a lot of breweries don't take on sour beers. They won't go into that lane because of the bacteria. And if it spreads to anything else, like... The whole thing's kind of contaminated and that's it. Now you're a sour beer facility, essentially. Is that true? Is that accurate? There's a combination wives' tale and there's some truth to it. We're actually going the opposite direction soon. Um, we are actually going to be starting to make uh, some, air quotes, clean beer relatively soon. We've actually done some of it in the past during collaborations and stuff where we make a uh, traditional lager or something like that. And we've done that and packaged it. And sure enough, the beer is not sour. So it definitely can be done. Uh, you you must be diligent. You must clean. We have some pretty heavy sanitization practices at our brewery. So we use um, steam to clean most things. Um, we're and steam's great. Steam steam will fix so many fuck ups. Like you could have so much contaminated equipment, but you steam that shit for 15 minutes. There's nothing alive in there. I don't I don't fucking care. It shit everything is dead. Like it, it doesn't matter. So like I mean it's definitely one of those things where I, sure. Are we the cleanest brewery? Probably not. I mean, I would say no, actually, we're not. Um, but, you know, we definitely know how to make clean beer. We have done it in the past. Um, and steam is definitely how the weapon that we use to get there. There's something cool about uh, like like barrel-aged lager, which is something that I'm going to be kind of looking, branching into really soon. And because uh, it's still barrel-aged, so that kind of thing. But no, you, you can do it. Dedicated equipment is how you get there, not bacteria hoses, you know gaskets that are not bacteria gaskets lines for your canning line that are clean and not clean that kind of stuff um, it's expensive which is why most people don't do it your facility has to stay at 70 degrees right between 68 and 72 yeah year round so with like the 68 to 70 degrees having to stay at that level of temperature what is the importance of that like why does it have to be in that range that is actually one of the things that when i think of the cost of my facility, the cost of what I do that I often take for granted. Temperature control is very important. There's not a there's not a brewer that you'll ever meet that doesn't temperature control their fermentation, right? They're like, our fermenters are chilled and all, you know, we have a glycol chiller that does all the fermentation control, that kind of stuff. But for some reason, there was like, there's like a disconnect with barrel aging where people are like, oh, well, but it's, it's a barrel, it's wood, you know, whatever. I'm like, yeah, it's a fermentation vessel. So you should continue that thought process of controlling your temperature throughout you know, the fermentation with some barrel aged product, you know, like, uh, some like stouts and stuff like that, they're aging bourbon barrels. You actually probably want 
no fermentation happening. Your fermentation is done. You're really just sort of waiting to pick up, you know, some of that character, uh, maybe a little bit of oxidation, that kind of thing. But for us, you know, all of the fermentation happens in that barrel. So we want it to be pretty consistent and we want it to be constant. Yeast, as much as like everyone's always talking about how Brett will take over your brewery and infect all your stuff, but it's 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 not as tough as everyone makes it out to. It really has a range of temperatures that it likes. It'll do good things if you're good to it. That temperature control was one of the things that I invested heavily in, and I think it paid off. Like I've had some of my friends come up and you know, taste barrels with me, and they're like, "Bam, dude! They're like all of these barrels are like good. Like none of them are like off." You know, you don't have all these crazy off flavors. And I'm like, yeah, because it's never hot in here. It's never cold. It's a great environment to to grow to grow yeast, which is essentially all I do. And I think it also kind of helps with picking up of, you know, nuanced flavors in the barrels as well. Like keeping a nice, nice constant temperature. So with the barrels, do you use all one size barrel? Or I know there's different sizes of barrels that you can use. And I'm assuming that affects kind of your end product. But there's even some places that only use new barrels. Some places maybe can reuse their own barrels. I know there's even, you know, beer places that like they get bourbon barrels from bourbon distilleries and then use that for their beer. I'm assuming all that just kind of affects the end result. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. Um, oh, man, there's a lot to unpack there. So f- we'll start with size. So size size of the barrel, that does that does change things. So we are pretty much strictly a small, small format barrel facility. Uh, there's a lot of breweries that have like the large format barrels, uh, often referred to as like fooders, um, which are like big giant tank like vessels that are made out of wood. They're much more efficient at holding volume per unit space. Like there's a lot of volume in there. It, they're also really nice for making consistent batches of beer. I think they're also really good at making one note beer. Like I've never had more one note beer than I have out of a fooder aged beer where it's like, yeah, this beer came out of one fooder. I can tell it tastes like nothing. It's one note. It's got one oak character. There's no complexity here. Like I, I, I get it. It's like, and that's why we're a small barrel format. I believe that blending is how you get complexity and nuance. And as soon as you just are like, yeah, we just took it out of this one barrel. Like it just, it just doesn't, doesn't do it. You can't, you can't add all these crazy nuances to a product when it's all coming out of one thing. Um, but that being said, we use standard wine barrels, which are like 60, 60 gallons or 59 gallons. And that's mostly because that's what's available on the market. I have, I don't have a lot of winery friends to get barrels from. I do have one and she's great uh, over at Ancient Oak. And she has definitely hooked me up with some really cool wine barrels this year, which we're going to also get. It's, which is cool because she's also going to give us some wine grapes so that we can then kind of like double down where it's like Zinfandel barrel, Zinfandel grapes, um, which I think will be really fucking cool. For the most part, we're buying barrels from a broker. So there's this huge secondary market where these middlemen go to distilleries and wineries and buy up all their stuff and then resell it to breweries, <laughs> which is really annoying. But like sometimes they do bring like, they do contribute some like quality. So like there's a barrel broker we use based in like a certain PA, they go and source like really cool barrels from like South America and stuff like that and Central America. And so like those guys are doing like, they're doing a thing. They also, you know, buy wine barrels from California, but they're, they're getting cool spear barrels, which is what I go for them, go to them for. They're the ones that hooked us up. We got some uh, Sotol barrels for uh, this project we're working on right now. I didn't even know what Sotol was um, until I got these barrels from them. Uh, It's like Mezcal. Um, it's like another indigenous Mexican spirit that's made from a cactus that's 
the name of the cactus is Sotol, actually. So it'd be like if tequila was called agave instead of tequila. But yeah, it's really cool. Um, and it's similar to like mezcal, and I love mezcal. So it's going to add a really, really cool character to this beer. But those are actually, again, back to barrel size. Those are small format barrels. Those are like 25 gallons or something like that. I don't like small format barrels, um, not from the standpoint of there's anything wrong with them, but from the standpoint of I can't use my standard barrel racks. So if you've ever been to our facility, all of our barrels are stored uh, horizontally on steel racks. We do that because our facility isn't gigantic and we blend beers from different barrels and different batches all the time. So we have to be able to modularly grab barrels and pull them out, that kind of thing. So everything needs to be able to move. There are some breweries that do like a pyramid stacking where they take all their barrels, they rack them all up on a wall, and then they like will drain them in place and fill them in place, which is cool from the standpoint of it's cheaper. Um, it's not cool from the standpoint if you ever need to get into any of those barrels or get one out or a barrel leaks or I mean, there's just so many drawbacks to that situation. This has happened probably 10 or 15 times at the brewery where I'll be like walking around in the barrels taking samples or something and I'll hear something. I'm like, is it raining? Just like a little like, and I'll be like, the fuck? And there'll just be some barrel that just has spontaneously started to leak. And I'm just like, what the fuck? We need to get that thing down right now, figure out what's going on so we can fix that leak. Which if you've had a pyramid stack, like what do you even do at that point? You're just like, yep, the bar- all that beer is going to come out and there's nothing we can do about it. That's the only, my only gripe against yeah, small format barrels is having small format racks. But at this point in the game, we have a bunch of small format racks, so it's not as much of an issue. Uh, smaller, cool distilleries tend to have more of the small barrels. So I found that hitting up more tiny distilleries, uh, we end up collecting more and more of these smaller barrels. So supposedly they age faster, air quotes, because uh, there's more wood to surface area or more wood surface to volume of beer. Uh, so you get a little bit more wood contact. That's not necessarily what I want. I mean, oak character's nice and all, but uh, I'm really more waiting for the beer to mature, in which that happens at whatever rate it matures at. I don't want the barrel forcing my hand one way or the other which sometimes it happens. Sometimes you taste a barrel and there's been a failure in it where the top staves have dried out and air is coming in and the beer starts getting acetic and you're like, I need to use this barrel in the next month or throw it away. So we'll try and get it into a blend, but sometimes it doesn't happen and we end up having to pitch it. Wineries and bourbon distilleries, they're pretty much single use on barrels. Can you guys reuse barrels multiple times or are you guys kind of one use and done? Oh, fuck no. We use them as many times as we can. I try to get as much life as a barrel as I can. And if it dies, I turn it into a planter or a garbage can because they're expensive. Like, and they're nice. Or, or the other alternative is I smoke it, like in my smoker. There's usually at least one barrel. Like we had one this week where, or last week with a new guy. He made a mistake, but he overpressurized a barrel and it shot the head off, which I'm glad no one was hurt. But yeah, so it exploded essentially. But it's like, yeah, that barrel is dead now. We only got to use, we used it three times. So, I mean, we got some use out of it, but he it did have a premature death. It'll end up turning into smoked meats, which is, you know, whatever. It's not a bad life for it. But yeah, no, we, I try to use them as much as possible. Barrels to me, the very, unless it's like a spear barrel where you're trying to get spear character, what I really want is just a vessel that's going to allow microoxidation and, and, eventually like a little bit to oak character our cellar is so big now i think we're at like we're just we're like 350 barrels or something like that oftentimes it's really nice to get a barrel or a beer sample that's not super oaky because then it can fit well in the blend if i need to dial down the oak character of a blend 
because fresh barrels yeah have way more oak character and it's some barrels produce more oak character than others so the more variation i have the better so as barrels get older they change um less oak character that kind of stuff we use them as long as we can you started out i think originally glass bottles you guys do cans now too as well so you guys do both now is there a pro and con of each one uh, i know canning is a lot cheaper in the long run once you actually have all the equipment to do it and everything like that but is there still some pros to to doing the glass bottles or is that just kind of like a throwback to you know the original days of keeping some nostalgia aspect yeah glass is dead uh we we have some glass bottles and they're left over from god 2020 i think was the last time we did a a bottle run but those beers are still good so if you see a bottle on the shelf snag it uh, it's still good. If you don't get it, I'll trade it for cans and then I'll drink it. So, I mean, it's really up to you. Like, I, it's still good beer. Um, I actually was really excited. We will get like, I guess, you know, we'll go to, we'll go to an account and they'll be like, oh, we have this old bottles on the shelf and our sales rep will be like, oh, we'll swap you for fresh cans, you know, for sure. And uh, they're, they're always, usually, they're usually willing to make the trade and then we'll get these really cool, you know, vintage beers and we'll get to drink them. And it's like, I'm like, man, some of these are really good. Or I'm like, God. Like this really turned out. I'm sad no one else got to drink this, but I mean, uh, it's you know it's a win for me. Uh, glass is cool. Like I love glass. It's pretty. It's a great container for the product we make because we can carve the shit out of it. I love I love really big bubbles on my sour beer. It just price point and it's just it just was one of those things where it's much harder to sell a bottle of beer for 13 bucks than it is to sell four cans for 16, even though it's the same beer. But aluminum, it's it's not as bad. I thought it was going to be, and we've been trying to kind of push the uh, the envelope on on aluminum. So we'll do uh, reconditioned cans. So the cool thing about glass is, yeah, you can you add a little bit of sugar to your beer, throw it in there, and it carbonates in the bottle, and you get a really nice high carb and uh, you get a really high yield because you're not spilling foamy beer everywhere. Um, and we do that process with cans occasionally. I think it's a great way to get extra uh, brett character in a beer. Um, Britannomyces does this really cool thing when it's under pressure where it'll be stressed out and it releases all these really interesting uh, metabolites, um, little esters and stuff that give it really cool fruity floral characters, um, which you do not get when you force carb. We've I've done trials where I've like force carb the same beer and bottle condition the same beer and bottle conditioned beer is always better, always. And it's just, uh, I find that anytime we have a beer that's, usually it's the stuff that's not fruited mostly from the standpoint of it's just less variables, um, fruit, puree, uh, little particulates, uh, they'll cause nucleation sites. So the beer will be really carbonated and then you'll crack it and it'll foam and you'll be annoyed, that kind of stuff. So we tend to only do it with our beers that are unfruited for that reason. But it's, yeah, and cans are, they're a good container. They're easy for us to fill they're infinitely recyclable but more importantly our distributors will buy them uh distributors won't buy glass <laughs> they straight up won't unless you're like dre fontaine or you know cantillon no one wants your fucking glass bottles which, which i mean i was pretty sad when i heard that that was like i think it was like two years ago it was pre-pandemic and the, the distributor was like oh yeah we won't we won't buy glass bottles from you just straight up like a non-starter and i'm like all right well when I get a canning line, I'll let you know. And yeah, sure enough, I called them up when I had a canning line. They were like, yep, we'll do it. Let us know. We'll buy a pallet of beer. And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. So so there is that. Easier to sell. So with IPAs, I don't 
really like IPAs. People are going to burn your podcast to the ground. Talk about the most popular beer in America. Personal preference, I don't like them. I think they're too hoppy. I think it's become this challenge of seeing how hoppy you can make a beer and how much stuff you can just jam into it. That's my personal opinion. With that, though, with IPAs being so popular, is that because the first thing like a microbrewery or somebody can kind of do and it has like a short shelf life, so it's constant turnover, but it's also popular, so people are going to buy it kind of deal? This is like, I can't shit on beer like while I'm recorded. Like everyone, I have, I definitely have opinions about the IPA. I'll get down on a West Coast IPA. Like it's, it's like, it's kind of what I grew up on. Like that's what was, that's what was going on when I was in college. Like I grew up during like the IBU wars when, you know, stone brewing was like, everyone was trying to make a, an IPA with a, over a hundred IBUs and all this bullshit, which is fine. I mean, I, I appreciate bitterness in a product. Um, I think it's actually a nice counterpoint because IPAs tend to be pretty sweet because they're like high alcohol, a lot of residual sugar. That's actually the, the only thing I don't like about um, that style of beer is it tends to be really sweet. I don't like sugar. Like I'm, I don't like soda. You know, I just, I like, I like dry things like, you know, very little residual sugar, which is like for my palate and the beer that I make, like it's perfect. You know, it's like, I love, I love these really dry, nuanced, flavorful kind of stuff versus like, I feel like. I feel like, uh, you know, like a hazy IPA is like fruit juice, but not as good. Like I'd rather have fruit juice. I don't know. But hey, I don't know. That's what the kids are drinking. I don't know. My big, I guess, thing I would throw at that is I like balance. And I feel like those beers lack balance. I feel like if you're going to have something that's fruity and sweet, that needs to have some sort of counterpoint, whether that's bitterness, uh, alcohol, a really dry finish. Like there's just got to be a counterpoint to that. I don't like sweet on sweet, but this America, we love sugar. You know, if you just like look at things like ketchup, straight up corn syrup, I mean, soda, it's just, it's who we are. Americans love sugar. That's why I like the smoothie, the smoothie beer fruit stuff is so popular because it's just, it's like alcoholic soda, Jamba Juice. I don't know. Actually, that's like, I've been really getting into wine lately because I feel like wine is definitely kind of in my alley where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of sugar in wine. Sure. But like it's countered by the oak and the alcohol and it's like it tends to be more of a balanced product and that's actually you know why i like some you know some cocktails not all because they end up being kind of sweet but like i just i just need it needs to have balance everything in balance columbus has 70 breweries and maybe the number is even higher than that i mean there's probably 70 alone on the ale trail or close to it now. Is the market oversaturated? Is it approaching saturation? That's a lot of different breweries. And I mean, you know, a few places closed kind of before the pandemic. I think Lineage just announced that they were closed and their owners were kind of tired of doing it, it seemed like based on the thing that I read. But but are we at market saturation for breweries? I think we're at a point now where it's not easy anymore. I th- I think in the beginning being unique was enough. I think I think that, you know, you being local was enough in the beginning. Um, and that's no longer the case. Uh, you know, you have to do it all now. You know, you have to have a social media presence, you have to have a restaurant, you have to have a prime location, you, and and you have to make good beer, right? You have to and you have to have great marketing and a sales rep and all this other stuff. And I think it just it's competitive now. That's what it is. It's very competitive. I think it used to be easy, and that's why so many breweries popped up. And now, I mean, if you don't fucking love it and you don't believe in it, like just you're not going to, you're not going to make it. Like, it's just, it, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart anymore. I think you really got to be into it. I 
put in less hours now than I used to because I have a kid. But like, I mean, I grind it out and I don't take a paycheck. You know, I fortunately, I'm fortunate enough that my wife makes enough money that I don't have to. But like, I mean, margins are thin and you work really hard, you know, that kind of thing. So I definitely understand like, you know, you mentioned lineage, like why they got out of it. Cause that was like, that was their income. Like that was their thing. They had to grind it out to make ends meet, that kind of stuff. Like if I was running this to fucking pay my rent, or feed my kid. Oh, fuck that. Like, there's just no, there's no way, you know, I do this for, for the love of the game. You know, I do this just for fun. I love it. You know, if I had to do it to, you know, to sustain my life, I, I'd probably, I wouldn't, it's not possible really. I don't know. I don't think saturations where we're headed right now. I was hoping when I started this, that what I would see was more specialization, which I thought I was starting to see, like, you know, like, we showed up on the scene and then like Dank House showed up and they're just like only doing like hazies, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, the, you know, Gamut shows up, they're only doing loggers. Like I was like, I was really hoping that we would just like have these like specialization breweries happen where it's just like they do that shit and they do it really fucking well and they do their shit and they do it really fucking well. And now all the consumers benefit because you have everyone doing something really well. You don't have whatever the the old brewery formula where you like have someone who makes twelve different beers and they're all fucking average at best. You know that's that's really what I was hoping for. I mean, it's it's kind of like restaurants. You know, you don't you don't go to like the fucking Asian restaurant that has a menu that's like fucking has a hundred items and they're from all different regions of you know Asia and it just doesn't make any sense, right? You go to the place that's got they do the one thing they do it really well, right? Like so that's what I was hoping for in the beer industry, but. I don't know if that's going to happen now. I don't know. It seems to be forever changing because when I started the most popular, I, I mean, they were still making brewed IPAs when I started this brewery. Um, that seems to have gone the way of the dinosaur. So I never know what's going to happen, which is why I don't chase whatever popularity is happening. You know, I don't, I don't chase the trends because who knows? Two years ago, the only thing you should make was seltzer beer and that's already fucking gone away. So I don't know. <laughs> like, that was I mean, that, and everyone was like, "Oh, seltzers, that shit's here to stay," you know. And then fucking all those big breweries bought in real big to it, and then it just kind of went away. Like it's it's still there, but it's definitely not like it was, you know, two years ago, three years ago, where you couldn't go anywhere and not see someone holding the seltzer. I don't know. I don't know. If I had a crystal ball, that'd be cool. Is the brewery scene in Columbus like is everybody pretty supportive of each other, or is it segmented where like all the sour beer places are? supportive of each other and then everybody who does ipas are kind of supportive of each other and or is there just everybody's in kind of their own corner i think the the scene itself is friendly for sure and like there's definitely like clicks like i have my friends who i do stuff with and it's just because we're friends uh, you know that kind of thing you just happen to get along and you're friends but everyone's really helpful like we have um like a Facebook group where we're all in, like everyone is in it, Ohio wide, like we're all in it kind of thing. And people will be like, you know, people post shit. I owe Wolf's Ridge like two like disposable kegs because I was short. I, you know, I was short a few and they had some and they just gave it to me. And I next time I order, I have to go drop them off. That kind of shit. Like everyone's really helpful. Like I've I've given bags of grain to people where they're like, oh, I'm short for my brew day. And I don't have whatever. I'm like, yeah, I fucking have it. Or I've had people come pick up aluminum cans for me because I needed. 100 aluminum cans or something. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Sure. Who cares? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. So everyone's really helpful. But like, I mean, it's like anything else, you know, where you have your you have your friends that you like to do shit with and you do stuff with them, that kind of thing. But I've never, I've never been shunned by anyone. So everyone's, yeah, everyone's really helpful and open and supportive. So that, I have definitely not seen any hostility or anything like that. 
there's there's not as much drama i think as people hope i don't, <laughs> I don't know i, I uh, that's definitely a question that comes up a lot is the ale trail helpful at all the ale trail is very helpful to breweries like me and it's very unhelpful to breweries that are that you've heard of the ale trail is land grant subsidizing my tap room right like because people go to land grant they pick up their book and then you know they end up coming to my place because it was in the book right like you know they're a brewery that like you pay for the books essentially like when you run out and that kind of stuff you know they're one of the places that they run out because people get their books there we've never run out of books <laughs> it, you know we we have fucking like 98 percent of our books at the end of the year you know people show up to our place because they got the book somewhere else so yeah i mean it is it is helpful for like us it does bring in people who would have never who've never heard of us it's helpful from an awareness standpoint. It's not like the price for admission. It's probably a wash. It probably it's probably break even. Awareness wise, it's usually helpful. Like definitely, pe- we get in people. Someone was you know, especially couples where someone was dragged there by someone else. Where oftentimes the big stereotype is we'll get someone who dragged their wife there, and she's like, oh, I I don't like beer. And we're like, you're in the right place because our beer does not taste like the beer that you're thinking about. I promise you. More often than not, we win them over. So like, I mean, it, it is helpful. We win over a lot of people because there's definitely either people have no idea what we do or they've never had anything produced in the method that we use to produce it. So, I mean, there is there is definitely some some win for us just to get people in the door because what we do is different. It is it is unique. So uh, it's hard to really convey that on the internet. If you could move or open another pretentious in any other city, where would it be and why? We actually already had the discussion with my my wife. When she started residency, she could basically move wherever she wanted, right? Because she had to go do her residency. Where we basically had to pick cities, which Columbus was like, it was on the list, believe it or not. But it was, uh, you know, because she really liked the program here. Like it was, she liked the hospital group. She liked, you know, some of her friends doing the residency here. Like she loved the program here. Uh, I'd only been in the city once and it was fine. Like I, you know, it was, I, it was a city. Like it had, it was, I was here, it was here during the summer. So that's probably like the ideal time to come, right? It wasn't in the middle of February or something like that. But, you know, on the list was Portland and Austin, uh, Indianapolis. And I was like, oh, Indianapolis, gross. But like, I love Austin. I love Portland. Both cool cities. Got good beer scenes, got good food scenes. You know, I, either of those cities would be cool to live in. They're definitely some of my favorite places to go. We used to go almost every year to both those cities just for fun because they're they're cool towns to go visit. Yeah, if I could do it again though, now where would I? I don't know. I like Columbus. Like I've really like I've really grown to like Columbus. It's got everything I need. You know, it's got lots of good food and there's a uh, you know good beer and I have my neighborhood. I love I love how they live in Clinville. I love it here. I love my neighbors. Being from California, it's weird to like have neighbors that I like and talk to. For those of you who've never lived in California, it's it's strange to talk to your neighbors. That's some you know, or strangers in general. Don't say hi. It's not something you fucking do. And we can if you're if you're in San Diego and you're visiting, you fucking Midwesterners, we can see you from a mile away, waving to random fucking people and being all nice. That's not what you do in California. You mind your fucking business. That's what you do. Do you enjoy the the Midwestern charm? There's it, there's something to be said about how nice people are, and it's, it's cool. I, you know, I like it here. You know, we bought a house and I started a company. I don't plan on going anywhere. So, but for the sake of the question. I I don't like winter, so I would definitely do like a do like an Austin. I think I would, I would vote Austin at this point in my life because fuck it, even snowed in Portland this last year, or you know, it's like Jesus, weather is strange. I guess Texas froze over this last year too, so I don't know. 
if someone wanted to get started in the brewing industry, what's the best way for them to do that? Should they start experimenting with home brewing? Is there schools that they can go to? Should they do an internship program somewhere? Like what's the best way for someone to dip their toes in the water? Uh, I will say this for all brewers everywhere. No one gives a fuck about your homebrew. Like we don't fucking care. Like absolutely don't care. Don't want to taste it. I don't, don't, nope, sure don't care. But that being said, the brewing schools, I mean, again, the brewery industry is like one of those ones where you're going to start at the bottom unless you, that's just, it sucks. You're going to wash kegs. You're going to, you're going to wash kegs. You're going to squeegee floors. Oftentimes they'll like, like person who gets in there is the guy who's like, bartends one day a week and is like, hey, I'll like help you catch cans like, you know, one day a week or that kind of stuff. Like that's how they get their foot in the door, that kind of thing. You can, education route is fine if you want to work at a big brewery. Like if you want to work at like, you know, a, a Surly or like a Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, these really large production breweries, education is absolutely the way to go. Or like Miller Coors, Budweiser, like they will definitely see your, you know, college degree and, you know, fermentation science and be like, cool, like, you know how Science, you know how beer works, you know how fermentation works, um, and that's that's a, a great way to get started. And you'll get paid more there too. Um, but if you want to work at the cool fucking you know little brew pub thing in your town, like yeah, you're gonna you're gonna squeegee. You're gonna start at the bottom. Unfortunately, it seems to be the the way in about it. I mean, we we hired one full time guy, uh, entry level position. We had 50 applicants for that job. It was insane. Like I'd never seen anyone have so much interest in a entry level position. I mean, we paid them well. I mean, it was like, well, well for beer industry. It was like 40K or something like that with benefits, which I'm like, is not great, but it's not, I guess it's not the worst because again, 50 applicants, everyone wants to work at a brewery, I guess. And you know what? He cleans all day, cleans all day. Every once in a while he gets to touch beer, but cleans all day. So if you like cleaning, you know, start working at a brewery. If you hate cleaning, don't work at a brewery. A couple years ago, you guys, this is definitely pre-COVID, but you guys made this limited batch of this peach cobbler beer. And I don't necessarily know that you guys have done it since. Will you ever bring that back in the future? Because that's probably one of the best beers that I've ever had. So we do, we definitely do a pie beer, like uh, everyone smiles. So the, the one you're talking about was made with, uh, with, was made with puree. So we use puree for a couple of reasons. Oftentimes it's because it's not summer and when it's not summer, you can't get real fruit. I mean, it is real fruit, everyone. It's it's fruit that they've just processed. I can get usually peaches you get, it's always the after the season. So like I can get peaches, you know, in, in fall, dead of winter, that kind of thing. The peach puree pie is a great, so the reason we did the pie on it is because the peach puree, because of like the, the heating process when they process it, they it tastes like cooked peaches like pie you know like if you if you cook a peach versus a fresh peach like the taste is very different right so so they, they have that like cooked peach flavor so i was like oh this is absolutely gonna be you know tasting a peach cobbler kind of thing so that that went really well together but so every year we do a fresh peach beer where we order like 600 pounds of peaches from like the tour the peach truck that comes up from from georgia and they go drop a skid of peaches off at our place and we spend Two weeks cycling through fucking peaches, which is the worst thing ever. Like it's just peaches get ripe and then they go too far all the time. So we spend like, we get all these peaches, which are, if you've ever bought peaches from the peach truck, they're not ripe. They're close, but they're not there. So we have them just sitting out. And then every single day we have to touch 
every peach. So you go open up all the boxes, transfer them to the new boxes, and the ones that are ripe, you pull out and they go in the fridge. And you spend however many weeks it takes or days it takes until you've got all the peaches into the fridge. And then you're ready to process them because then they're all ripe. So getting them all ripe without getting them too ripe is a process that I hate, but the beer tastes so good that we do it every year. So working with whole fruit is a whole another reason why working with puree is awesome because the puree shows up on your doorstep. It's ready to go. It's in a container. You can pour into a tank. Like it's just, it's way easier to work with, but it tastes different. Like, so the peach cobbler beer. Yeah. We'll probably do something like that again because peaches and puree peaches we can get, we probably get them right now. If not, we'll be able to get them in the fall. That kind of thing. That is something that I'm, I'm thankful we have the ability to get processed fruit, but summer months are coming. So like for us, uh, our, it actually works out really well. So our anniversary party is in the fall, in October, but we've had all summer to get all of these cool fruits and process them and get those beers ready because they have to sit on fruit for like four to six weeks for the fermentation to complete before we can package them. So, you know, we all of our summer fruit beers are released in the fall slash winter because it takes that long for us to get them all together and get them processed. What's next for you professionally? What's next for you guys? Lager beer. I went to Asheville last fall um and i went to a brewery there that that essentially does they do like they do like brett beer and they also do lagers and like lagers are one of those things where they're they're like a beer style that it's like a brewers really like but people don't like as much anymore which is funny because like it's like going full circle it's such a weird fucking cycle of things so like budweiser is a lager so for those people that aren't familiar with terminology wise like budweiser Heineken, you know, all these, the beer that people think of as like macro beers, like those are all lagers. So like that cold fermentation process. But anyways, back in the day, you know, they would, they would ferment and store beer in oak because that was the only container you had pre-stainless, you know, that's what they would store things in. And I would like to contend that those beers are probably delicious. Uh, So I really, the first time I ever had some like really cool oak age lagers, I was like, this had such a cool mouthfeel to it. Like it had all these other like nuanced flavors that I really enjoy. And it's like a nice, easy drinking, you know, kind of bitter lager situation. So it's something I'm interested in. Uh, it's something I want to learn more about. Um, so I've read a couple books this last year uh, and I'm ready to, you know, start experimenting, start the whole process over. Now that I feel like I got like the sour beer thing over and done. I wouldn't say mastered because I, I fucking hate terms like that. Like I hate being like, oh, I know I have it down now. I've 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 conquered this thing. I know everything about it. But I feel like at this point I we have it under control to the point where I don't spend my nights thinking about it anymore. I don't I'm not dreaming about it anymore in the same way. Like I like it's funny to say it that way, but it's true. So I used to kind of like daydream about like the beers I'd get to make and like the blending I'd get to do and all this stuff, which I feel like at this point we've done a lot of that. Um, so I'm trying to grow in, in other, in other ways. So usually that involves like new styles of beer. So like this year, like we just were releasing a smoked beer this week. And that was something where I had never done that before. And so I went and learned from one of my friends and then we made this beer together and it's amazing. And, you know, I feel like I'm growing as a beer maker at that point. The lager beer thing is something that I also want to learn about and kind of, you know, develop some recipes and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's some blending aspect to it that I can, you know, introduce or not, but I'd like to just kind of experiment with that style of beer and what a little bit of oak aging can do for it. I'd be, I'm just, you know. I'm like anyone else. I just want to, I want to, I want to make cool shit and I want to learn, learn new things. 
So the next question comes from Chef Chris Kajoika. He's the chef owner of Miro Kaimuki out in Honolulu, Hawaii. He was previous guest on the podcast. He left behind a question. What restaurant or brewery inspires you the most in terms of culture, beer, cuisine, everything? Oh, inspires me the most. I guess that's that's like kind of current, which sucks because like I haven't gotten out much lately. But I did just talk about how, you know, the brewery I went to you know, on vacation inspired me to kind of take on this lager thing, which is new to me. I'm going to take that question and go back in time a little bit. The first time I ever went to, fuck, Wisconsin Brewery, New Glarus. Have you ever had New Glarus beer before? No, the only thing I've had from Wisconsin that I know of, you know, Spotted Cow I've had. That's New Glarus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Spotted Cow is a good beer. That's also a lager. I like how everything is just, it's just all hitting the same marks. So the first time I went to that brewery, I, I honestly, I'd, I'd never, I hadn't had any of their beer, but I met some guys at a homebrew conference long ago and they couldn't, the Midwestern guys, and they couldn't stop talking about how excellent New Glarus was. And on my road trip across the country, uh, we stopped in Wisconsin because we we drove fucking from San Diego up to Portland and then all the way across. It was it was it was a nice. We spent like four weeks. It was fun. Um, but we went. I made sure to stop through Wisconsin to go to New Glarus, and it's like this giant stainless steel monstrous brewery that they tucked inside of a farmhouse. So they built this like farmhouse facade over this giant industrial, beautiful brewery. And we're walking in there and being like in awe of how much stainless and tile. And it was just like this beautiful thing, but they were doing really cool shit still. They were doing like these like open top fermentation wheat beers and like all of these really traditional beers. And they do their sour beer stuff too. But like, I remember going there and being like, man, these guys, like everything they make is fucking great. You know, they do it all at like such a really high degree of um, not necessarily efficiency, but just like just a high degree of quality. And it was like really cool to see that considering they started, I guess, as a much, much, much smaller brewery. Um, we went to the smaller brewery and I was like, oh, yes, this is much more what I'm accustomed to when I go to a brewery in this tiny little hole in the wall to see them kind of grow to this gigantic thing, but still maintain their like, I guess, their aesthetic and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. And yeah, they did they did everything, which that, that kind of harkens me back to the the old brewery mantra of make every beer, <laughs> I guess, that you can. Every style. Must make every style. And two seasonals, you know, twice a year. Like oh, the, the old recipe for what a brewery is. That was definitely an influential one for me. So there's so many breweries now, but that was that's definitely still a, a, a tour trip that I remember vividly. What question do you want to ask the next guest on the podcast? Oh, um, I'm trying to think of what's my least favorite question to be asked. Inspirations is inspirations tough. That's like yeah, that's always a good question. To be being inspired is a is a rough one. So if I was going to ask someone else a question, it would probably be, "What do you do when you're uninspired?" Because that's something that I feel like a lot of creative people deal with. And as you work longer you get a much more clear answer for how you deal with that. Um, for me, it's bourbon. Bourbon's always how I deal with it. Bourbon and food. I will always, if I'm in a funk, I just go get that bottle of bourbon um, or I'll go somewhere. Uh, more often than not, I'll go to a restaurant somewhere that has a bourbon selection and I'll get some food and some bourbon and really kind of think about what's going on and uh, how I feel. But usually after a few bourbons, I'm like, I really get those those juices flowing where all of a sudden I'm like, well, it'd be cool if we made this beer inspired by this ridiculous appetizer that I'm eating or something or some cocktail that someone walked by with that kind of stuff. But yeah, we'll see what they do to get inspired because sometimes it's tough. 
So this next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what is the most important part of your brewing process for a batch of beer? The most important part, unfortunately, is the blending. That is the part where I, the UK, there's no shortcuts. There's no, there's nowhere to hide. You can't take anything for granted, especially for me. I think it's what separates what I do from everyone else because my palate's different than anyone else's palate. People ask me sometimes, I don't know, because we have another brewery make our beer for us, right? They're like, Are you, aren't you worried that they'll make your beer? To which I was like, absolutely not. I was like, I will give every, I'll put my internet, my recipes on the internet. I don't care. Like it's not, that's not what makes our beer special. The recipe is not what makes our beer special. People at other breweries, they've asked me, they're like, what fruiting ratios do you use? You know, what are your recipes like? And I give them to them. Let me check. But yeah, here it is. Like, I don't, I don't care. The thing that's special about us is, does the blending process. Like I like to say I make impossible beers because there's no way to prepare that beer other than by blending it. You can't ferment that beer to be the same beer that I just made because the beer that I made probably never make again because it's blended from multiple batches and multiple different types of barrels. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I was kind of sick that day and my nose was being weird and I blended something that I wouldn't blend again two weeks, which is actually a big struggle I have is anytime I get sick, I can't blend for a little bit. So I try and blend ahead as much as I can. So like I have beers that we're going to make next month that I'm doing the blending for this week just to try and keep blends together and keep keep the project going because I have a toddler and they just bring home plagues all the time from daycare. So like I have to be ready to just not smell for two weeks at a time, which has been, it was a struggle when you first started daycare. Like there was a month where we didn't blend any beer. And then the following month, we almost ran out of beer. Like my salesperson was like, what am I supposed to sell? And I'm like, we will make beer. I promise. I just, as soon as I can smell stuff, like we're going to go. But uh, yeah, that was, that's been a, a rough thing to navigate. Next set of questions here. We ask these to kind of everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast. These are tailored a little differently just because you are a brewmaster. Who was the biggest influence on your brewing career thus far? I've met a lot of really influential characters on my, uh, on like in my career. The biggest influence on the beer that I make today was actually made by like a three hour long hangout I had with Chad uh, Jacobson from Crooked Stave. Uh, I met him at a Master Brewers conference. I hadn't opened the brewery yet. So this was like the summer before we opened. And I was talking about my concept. I was, you know, oh my God, I love your beer. You know, like just nerding out, talking to him. I was like, yeah, I'm going to make the Sour Beer Brewery. I'm going to do all these like 100% Brett fermented beers. And then we're going to barrel age them. And I'm going to add, you know, do all this stuff. And he was like, don't do that. I was like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, we used to make 100% Brett beers all the time. And they're terrible. Like they're just, they're just not good and they never get good and they're slow. And they had all these things to tell me about how anytime they did a beer that was Brett fermented, it was just awful. You know, they had the most problems with it and all sorts of stuff. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to disregard this guy's information. You know, he's giving me free advice. I'm just, so I didn't. So I just, I just scrapped all of my ideas and, you know, I'm like, all right, well, I'll do, I'll do it, you know, all in the secondary, that kind of stuff. So he, single-handedly in a few hours changed the whole trajectory of my production. I probably, I should just kind of throw that out there to him. What's one thing in the brewery that if it breaks, you won't fix it yourself? So like I did so much of this shit at the brewery. Like at this point I am, if it's electrical, got it. Gas, got it. 
fucking, you know, I've refinished all of our concrete floors. Like I fucking, I can do most anything at this point. I have the tools as well. The one thing I cannot do is refrigeration because they actually won't allow you to buy Freon unless you have a license. I tried. So I, that's the, when I, the refrigerate, if refrigeration goes out, I call the refrigeration guys. Brewery that you'd recommend that isn't your own. Oh, so many breweries I'd recommend. Shit. Yeah, shit. I I, mean, I give recommendations all the fucking time. People come into the brewery and they're like, where should I go next? And it's like, well, in Columbus, you know, 4th Street has fucking a bunch of breweries on it. You know, and they got Wolf's Ridge and Seven Sun and everyone likes their hoof-hearted. But um, I'm going to shout out my boys at uh, Gamut, the Lager Boys. They do, they make really good stuff. Yeah, they're worth checking out. They got a nice kitchen and stuff too. They are they used to work at 4-String uh, back when I was make, getting my wort made there. So they actually have and in some capacity made some of the beer that I've sold. So they're they're good dudes and they make great beer. So bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So place you haven't been to you want to visit and place you haven't eaten at but you want to eat at one day. I've actually gotten real into food lately. Like I want to go do there's like some restaurants I want to go check out. But uh see destination wise, my wife and I really want to go to Patagonia, do some hiking for the Chile. But we did Peru right after she graduated from medical school and that was fucking awesome. And I'm like, we should come back to South America. It was, it was cheap. It was, it was a great, I cannot recommend South America enough. Um, it was, it was, and it's like, you're shame. Like there's no jet lag. Cause you're like all in the same time zone. Like it's just, there's so many benefits of South America, but, uh, and it was still like very European, like that whole world. Cause Spain was there for so long. Like it's, it's, it's a really cool spot. So I want to go down there and do some do some hiking and stuff. That'd be fun. Food wise, uh, I just watched watch my call it again. Chiro dreams of sushi, and I'm like, fuck, man, I should have should have gone there when I was in Tokyo. I should have fucking that would have been badass. But I think actually though this this year we're gonna go up to Chicago and go to uh, Linea. That'll be fun. That's definitely something where I'm like, this is gonna be fucking cool. Like I'm I'm excited for this. That'll be my current plan. Just some advice on that. When you go to book the reservation, they open the reservation books. I think it's the first Monday of the month. They put it on their Instagram. And I think it's usually at, it's either 11 our time, 10 a.m. their time or, or noon our time, something like that. They'll put the time and the date that they open it. And it's usually like the next month out, but you have to be on the talk website, just refresh, refresh, refresh. And then because they have two different menus, they have like a, a smaller menu in their like salon. I think it's like on their second floor or something like that, which is like maybe 12 or 14 courses, but then their big menu, which is like 18 courses. I've never been able, I've tried, I don't know, probably three, four times. I've never been able to get a reservation for the big menu. The small one, you can always kind of find a reservation, even if you're not on that day. But if you're going for the big one, plan accordingly carve out that time in your calendar so you're in front of your computer doing it unfortunately i haven't done it in a while but when we were trying to go there for a while oh just for whatever reason it was super challenging i think they have like two seatings a day so that's the only advice i could give you on that when you get to that point yeah i think june is when we're going to start looking so i'll june 1st i'll be i'll be ready i'll, I'll start following up make sure that i'm ready to go i think for june like they might even open the reservation book like next week then at the beginning of may Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that's terrible for you, fast food, candy, whatever, that you just can't help yourself? 
yeah, dude, having a toddler, you get reintroduced to all this stupid shit that you've forgotten exists. I fucking will smash Cheez-Its. Just fucking eat a whole disgusting bag of Cheez-Its. And you're just like, God, these like don't even taste that good. Why did I do that? Now I feel like shit. Oh, but like the kid's like, hey, once it gets his little cup of Cheez-Its and then I eat the whole bag. And I'm just like, oh, that's definitely something. I'm just like, oh, why did I do that to myself? Favorite Instagram account you follow? Ooh. I hate so much about Instagram. What? Who's my favorite Instagram account? That's tough, actually. I'm trying to think what account I follow that I even interact with on a daily basis. Don't even have to interact with it, but it's just an account that, like, you know, when you see whatever post or story, you're like, you're like, oh, cool. Like, you don't skip it. You know what I mean? There's this new one I started following because my buddy keeps, he sent me a couple pictures of it. It's called I Remember That Shit. And it's just like random shit from the 90s. It's all it is. Like, it's just like random posts of like your Reebok pumps, like commercial, like screenshot or like shit that I forgot. Like they posted about today about, do you remember soaps, the shoes with the little fucking plate on it? I totally forgot that existed, but that was a real fucking thing. It was a real fucking thing that existed. And anyone who owned a pair of those was a fucking twat. Like there's just, there's no way around it. That's an account that I follow recently. Like it always makes me laugh because I'm like, Jesus Christ, the 90s, they're wild. Favorite beer you've ever brewed? Uh, for this, I would say, is there a beer that like when you think back over the course of being involved in brewing that you're like, man, I wish I could recreate that beer? That's tough because like I'm like real hypercritical. So like if I've touched it, so uh, I always have critiques. But this actually, this beer we're about to release uh, this week, this like smoke beer. We're about to release this probably one of my favorite beers we've ever made. So we did this smoked beer, which it was cool because we went to this tiny little malt farm in Indiana called Sugar Creek. And like it is so ridiculous. Like it is just obviously handmade. Like everything he has there, he's obviously just put together himself or acquired. It's just like nothing matches. Everything's like custom. There's like this mill he uses, or it's not even a mill, it's like a separator. Yeah, to separate grain from chaff. And it's like over a hundred years old, made out of wood. It's got these like pulleys that are like not OSHA safe to like suck your arm in and cut your hand off, like kind of shit. We're just like, this place is wild. But yeah, he makes these really cool traditional like smoke malts. Like he'll make like this malt Gradzitski. I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it's like a Norwegian malt. And it's smoky because they used to kill malt with fire. So it's like it's smoky by happenstance, not by intent. Like it's, that's the only heat source they had. But he hey, he makes like six or so different smoke malts versus like if you go to like big malt suppliers like bsg they have like two smoke malts they all taste the same because like in every smoke beer you've ever had has been made with one of those smoke malts like if you have a smoke porter you like or whatever odds are it was the same fucking smoke malt the wireman or whatever anyways so it was cool to taste this like all the different like different smoke characters that he produced from all these different woods and different processes and it was just like i was like we need to do something here so we put together this really interesting smoke profile so we fermented this beer out and then took it back to our place put in barrels them on this like mezcal kick like really wanted to have this like smoky like tequila like flavor profile thing so we aged half in tequila barrels and then we did half in in uh, wine barrels for contrast and the tequila one i mean it tastes like there's like smoke salt lime and it. it's just such a wonderful flavor profile that i just like i had one yesterday and it's so rare for me to drink my beer on my own time at my house like that's like and i've had like four of these beers because i'm just like i honestly was like it's such a small batch 
I was like, fuck it, maybe I'll just buy all of it and then I get to keep it. Because it's like, it's reconditioned, it'll last forever. Like, it'll sit in that can for, you know, years. And I'm just like, fuck it, maybe we don't release this. Maybe I just drink it all myself. Like, this is good. I don't give a shit if anyone else gets to try it. Like, it's just, this is for me. I'm in on this. Fuck everyone else. This is this beer is delicious. And I, that's the other thing too, where it's like, it's unique and it's smoky and there's going to be people that hate it. And I'm like, I don't fucking care because this beer is amazing and I will drink it myself. So hopefully everyone hates it because then I get to drink more of it. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were the moment episode scene that stands out to you the most, if you weren't, was there anybody who is like a culinary food kind of personality on TV that you always kind of were a fan of or gravitated towards or anything? It's weird now with like celebrity chefdom now that like they're on Instagram, like they're, you're, they're available, like they're right there. Like it's real weird now versus like, yeah, Bourdain, he's like, he's like that last bastion that was still like, they, you couldn't really touch him. Like they were still like on TV and then, you know, he passed. He didn't really get to, he wasn't in that realm. He's a little bit more, I guess you couldn't get to know him the same way as like everyone else where you see all their bullshit on Instagram all the time. I'm actually like late to the Bourdain thing. I didn't watch his show. Um, I knew he was kind of a controversial character, but I, I saw him on like my wife and I watched like Top Chef together a lot. And so like he does like guest judging. And he seems like a good dude. He knows a lot. My favorite thing he does is just like unabashedly tell people their food sucks or that they failed at whatever reason. Uh, and But not like in a, like a really negative way, but just kind of like, hey, you should understand that this is bad because if you don't understand this is bad, you can't do better, which honestly is like feedback that I feel like a lot of people need. I mean, I feel like in the brewing industry, in the food industry or whatever, like you'll try people's stuff and, and be like, you like this? This is your intent? I mean, you're a nice person. You're like, I'm fucking, if I say anything to this person, I'm not trying to be a dick, but like that kind of shit. Other celebrity chef that I like, I guess would be kind of more, more influenced by was uh shit. I mean, I watch it. Like, I feel like I, I follow more celebrity chefs than a lot of other shit, like food wise. Yeah. I still, cause that's great. Cause I just steal their ideas all day. Like, I love that shit. They post something random and I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm gonna try and make something similar to that or make it different. Boarding was good. I like Emerald. Emerald's also like, like again, top chef kind of thing, but he's like, he's such a nice dude. Like he like legit, even when he like hates something, he's still like, like he's like grandpa where he's like real nice. And like, he's real like, he's like, yeah, this is bad. But like, you know, you try it really hard and I, I see what you're doing, you know, like you gotta love that guy. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm more of an Emerald guy than a Bourdain guy. I don't know. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Uh, so we are on Instagram. We are, let me look it up right now. We're pretentious barrel house. I believe all one word, because I think that's all we could get. Cause there's someone out there who's pretentious BH and I hate them. So, cause like, I think our Twitter is pretentious. BH. Don't go to Twitter. It doesn't, ex- it's like, we have it, but it's like, we haven't tweeted since 2018 or some shit like that. We go to our website, pretentiousbarrelhouse.com. There'll be underwhelming amounts of information there which I think that's my goal this year is to really start working on our website. Unfortunately, Instagram is probably our best. It's probably our best social media. That's sad. I think we're also on Facebook, essentially also, I think pretentious BH on Facebook. Don't go to my Instagram because it's just pictures of my kid and the food I make. There'll be very little beer content. It's just pictures of my cute ass kid and then some food stuff. The tap room's open. We're open Friday, Saturday, Sunday still. We haven't gone back to... We used to be open Wednesday through Sunday, but we haven't gone back. We're just weekends right now. I don't know if we're coming back to weekday service. It seems uh, low return, I feel like. Uh, I always tell people, go out on a Wednesday. 
because it's not as crowded as you would think lately. So I've been trying to, lots of my wife and I have been trying to go out and eat more like during the week because like I feel like a lot of my favorite places are pretty slow on a Wednesday. Yeah, work from home has killed the happy hour. No one's really going out during the week. If I clocked out and I was at home on a Wednesday, I sure as fuck wouldn't leave my house. But I'm encouraging you to leave your house during the week to go support those things that you enjoy because they're hurting still, that's for sure. Your guys' beer is pretty much available. I mean, everywhere. Giant Eagle, Grandview definitely has it. The beer place in the North Market, I've seen it there too as well. I think you guys are pretty much all over. Yeah, I would say like any respectable bottle shop will have our stuff. Yeah, here, Cincinnati, Dayton, Cleveland. Yeah, any any decent bottle shop will have our stuff. And cans, because it's in cans now, guys. It's all in cans. So go to the Instagram and look at the cans. They're really pretty. Our graphic designer does good shit. Keep an eye out for those cans. I promise you the beer is the same. It's just in an aluminum container. There's a few bottles out there that are in glass. If though, If you do see those, please buy them so that they can go away. And there'll be no more. So they're collectibles, I promise. I'm not going to fill any more glass bottles anytime soon. Pretentious. It's great beer. The peach cobbler one you guys had is one of my all-time favorites. I, I constantly, when it gets to the fall, I always look and see if maybe that's coming back. I know you guys did like the, you guys did like a cherry pie one, and like a raspberry pie, blueberry. can't remember what else. Because I know you guys did like one year, you did like four pie ones and you released like one new one like each week. But no, I mean, the, the beer is awesome. I like sour beer. Probably my favorite style of beer. You know, it's more popular than it was, but there's still not a whole lot of places that do it. And then places that do it well, it's it's even less. Yeah, it's an awesome spot. I would encourage everybody to, to stop in if you can. And otherwise, pick up some in the nearest grocery store whenever you can. But yeah, I'll definitely be uh, be on the lookout for the next round of the, the peach beer for sure. Everything else that you guys got coming up. I know you guys... Did some stuff with Greg, who's been on the podcast, the Cuvée de Somme, I think beer, whatever was a was the thing that you guys did too. We'll definitely get that peach beer for you this year. It's not a big ask. We'll put that together. It has been a while though. It's been a couple of years since we've made it. So you can feel real special this fall when it shows up. You have to get some cans. Greg and yeah, I actually just worked with Greg again a few weeks ago. We got this year's Cuvée de Somme and this year's Cuvée de Josh that him and I worked on. So the exciting new fun beers hopefully released at some point this summer slash fall. Big fan. It's awesome to see you guys make it through the pandemic and, and we'll be seeing you soon and, and stopping in and everything. Yeah, cheers. A big thanks again to Josh for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his evenings uh, to come on and, and talk beer and talk about his career and how he got into it and everything. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Josh Martinez. That's Martinez with an E on Instagram. You can also follow the brewery at Pretentious Barrel House. You can find their beer pretty much all over uh, here in Columbus and even outside of Columbus. I mean, recently they were posting on their Instagram account, got some stuff in Atlanta in that market there, but you can find it in Cincinnati and Cleveland, pretty much any, you know, Kroger, Giant Eagle, I think maybe Wyland's Market might carry it. You know, any kind of place that's got, you know, a decent beer selection, you're going to be able to find their stuff there. You can follow us on Instagram too, as well as I mentioned, uh, at Spoon Mob. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, and check out the website, spoonmob.com. But that's it for this week. Uh, more episodes on the way. So we will talk to you guys next Thursday. Appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help spread the word. I appreciate all the feedback that we've gotten uh, written into as well and messages on Instagram and, and comments and everything too. So it's great to see all that and people enjoying the podcast. So we enjoy doing it and we will talk to you guys next week.